Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Well, I don't know about you, Scott, but for the last two months or so, I have felt completely and utterly overwhelmed. Yeah, I was, whatever little modicum of free time I'm used to having, I've had none of about the past three weeks. And then no, and it, when we get to this point, I always feel like, by the way, I'm, I'm having a Mountain Dew. And, and the, with, that's it. Yeah, the caffeine and the sugar, and then that combined with like weeks of research that is literally overfilling my brain. Not literally. <laughs> I hate it when people overuse that word, but it is literally my brain. It, it, so what's going to happen when the Mountain Dew hits and we start rolling with this is I'm just going to be like, <laughs> sorry, man. Yeah. More chatty and just yeah. vomiting information. Yeah. No, and every little bit of free time you've had, you've purposely stuffed with even more TSM, the Summerton Man information. Yeah. And and not only that, but we've turned some people crazy. We've as I would, as I was mentioning to you days ago, it could be weeks, I don't I don't even know, that we created a golem of yeah. our own called the Astonishing Research Core. And we put a little rolled up piece of paper into its mouth that said Talman should on it. And it went crazy. We thought it was going to do our bidding and then it just kind of tore us to shreds because they dove so deep into this we were both really astounded and astonished. Yes. I got to say, no, it just, it, it became a thing of its own. They dug up so much stuff that we couldn't possibly have dug up on our own. And I'm so proud of them. And I, I've, I've not even, I've just, I'm, I'm, I'm in awe. I haven't actually participated as much as I've liked, but I've looked at it. I've kept up as much as I possibly could, lurking in the shadows, as you say. And uh, yeah, truly amazing effort on all of their parts. And you're going to hear about it tonight. We also want to thank everyone who's become a patron of the show over at Patreon. We passed our first milestone goal there, which is really helping us stay afloat. And we have the additional exciting news of being able to say that we have two new sponsors tonight. Yes, Mac Weldon and The Great Courses Plus. We're going to be telling you how to get promotional codes for both in tonight's episode. Please remember that supporting our sponsors, in turn, supports the show and gives us the ability to keep producing it. Well, this is going to be an exciting episode. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Please be advised that a search of these prints through the identification division of the FBI has failed to disclose any record. Sincerely yours, John Edgar Hoover. Excerpt from a January 1949 letter to the Adelaide Police Commissioner obtained by Professor Abbott through the Freedom of Information Act regarding the Summerton Man's fingerprints. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on the Summerton Man and an in-depth look at many of the prominent theories surrounding the case. All right, so a lot of people have... A lot of ideas about who the Summerton man might have been. Yeah, but don't, don't. Good night. <laughs> Take two from the top. <laughs> a lot of. <laughs> I might keep that. No, oh, no, no. Please don't. It's not. Everything is not gold. That That's pretty scrolling. funny, though. That was. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of ideas about who the Summerton man was and how he died. Boy, don't they ever! And. Uh, for me, as we've gone through this, the, the case has reminded me very much of playing that old board game, 
which I used to love to play when I was a kid, Clue. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it, it's very much a Colonel Mustard in the study <laughs> with the lead pipe. <laughs> the candlestick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was also a really great movie, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah not bad. Very uh, Michael Caine. Michael yeah. Caine. Yes, yeah. I believe. No, so uh, Check that one out, kids. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, one, uh, tabletop games, family game night, that's all coming back. So even the young folks know uh, or should know that uh, the, the joy of these simple games that had a lot of uh, really clever construction about them. And what Scott's talking about is that what you have are different elements, a person, you know, all, all contained within, I think the, the common element is you're in, you're in the one house, the manor house. You must figure out who done it yes. with these very disparate sets of elements randomly distributed. Exactly. So yeah, so you have a, a guy, a possible guy. Who is it? Colonel Mustard. What did he have? Possibly a candlestick, a lead pipe. Yes. Uh, a book. I think I don't know if there was one of them, but there was many, not a book. No. Okay. Many things you can kill somebody with, but where, when, how, who did it? So what Scott's saying is that we've got some of these elements, but not all. That's right. And we're and trying I, to piece this together. And, and when we take a look at the big picture of all the different ideas that people have about the Somerton Man, I mean, it's the the story is it, what, was it a love triangle? Was he a jilted lover? Is he was he a spy? Yeah. Was he a victim of a serial killer? Was Joe, the nurse, was she a serial killer? <laughs> right. There's even some people who think he was killed by the mob from yeah. Sydney by an assassin named Tamam Should. <laughs> well, so. Tom. Tom. Yeah, M. Tom. Good Tom old Tom M. Should. Should. You still no, he should kill him, but uh, no, that's not his last name. Oh, my God. But what he's saying is that it seems pretty, I don't want to say cut and dried, but it's like, as some people have commented, like, well, it's a dead guy on a beach. Who cares? But when you start peeling back the layers of this onion, you, you start realizing that it, they, there's little things that shoot off into some really crazy areas. Now, one we mentioned before, the, the similar death with the rubaiyat on his chest. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what you say to grape? Uh, uh, oh, maybe a grape's not the right snack to have. <laughs> it's, it's been a, little, a <laughs> wad of caramel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> Would you um, like a, a tablespoon of peanut butter? To uh, no. I'm, okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, we, we, we addressed uh, – that was uh, Joseph Saulhaim Marshall – or George Marshall, excuse me. George yes. Saulhaim Marshall who yeah. was found dead outside the hospital where – Near where, where she worked. Where Joe yeah. used to work in Sydney. And, but we, we pretty much concluded, yeah. Yeah. thanks to a newspaper article and other supporting information, that that guy was mentally unstable and, and probably committed suicide. Right. With a theme – with a theme, yes, he was into the theme, and and so those are interesting connections, and uh, they're proximal coincidences. But does it mean anything? Right? Does it mean anything? And yeah. so here's here's how I you know the first thing that I came up with when I was trying to come up with an outline for this show was we have these fundamental questions, and this is very much sort of the clue set up a little bit. But who was the Somerton man? Why has nobody been able to verifiably indicate what his identity was? Why was his ID removed? Why did he have Tamam Should hidden in his pocket? Why did Jessica Joe Thompson pretend not to know him? What was the code written in that matching copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam that was found in the car where his piece of paper had come from? And how did he die? To look at all this, we have to look at most of the scenarios that have been put forth. Some are well-known, others less so. We can't look at every single one, but we can look at some of the more prominent ones and just tell you what we think. All right, Scott. Well, let's start pulling all these threads. All right. So when we first started digging into this case, I reached out to a confidential source who is a former member of the intelligence community, and I asked him for his opinion on TSM. This guy is retired from the USASA. That's United States Army Security Agency. I had to look them up. I actually hadn't heard of them. They were focused on monitoring 
any and all communications they could get their hands on coming out of China and Russia from anywhere in the world and any of their known allies at the time. Ah, yes, Semper Vigilis, the Diddy Boppers, the Lingis, the Crips, the Tape Apes. Are you uh, feeling okay? <laughs> well, I'm just I'm slinging that uh, Hepcat lingo there. Oh yeah, pal. So, <laughs> yeah, you've never heard of the the, uh, yeah. the Diddy Boppers? Well, those guys that look in these agencies, there's a lot of shorthand, a lot of code. It's it's really a club of sorts, very exclusive. So they have a lot of their own uh, their own lingo. So the Diddy Boppers translate Morse code. The Lingis are the linguists. The Crips are the cryptographers, and the Tape Apes specialized in telecommunications, you know, because they're, they're pouring over hours and hours of tape. Right. Yeah. And they have to have electronics knowledge, too, for, the, all, at the, for whatever's current state of the art at the time. Absolutely. So that's what they're experts in. So our source was a former member of the USASA, which at the time reported to the NSA. I had asked him about the Summerton Man case, and he hesitated at first due to the fact that when ASA personnel were debriefed, they had to sign a document that said they would not speak of anything they saw or did for 30 years. He mentioned a phrase that was enforced upon them at the time, 30 years silence or 30 years in Leavenworth. <laughs> so, wow. uh, yeah. So he went on to add that he actually had a colleague serving a life sentence in a maximum security prison at this very moment. For blabbing? He wouldn't say – he told me if I wanted to ask him about it, we had to do it in a different email thread. Oh, And I haven't done it yet. I'm dying to know. So we'll <laughs> okay. get to the bottom of that. Okay. Maybe we can share that, uh, that story with our uh, Patreon supporters. There you go. But anyway, with regard to TSM, he informed me that he didn't have any direct knowledge of the case, but he had an acquaintance whom he hadn't seen in years who might have some insight, a retired man from the company. You mean the agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, men – Police men. <laughs> Rooker Hauer, Osterman Weekend. It all ties oh, together. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. There you go. I, I'm not at liberty to say, but, uh, okay. but yes, he was. He was ex-CIA. Well, yeah. All right. Well, I'm sure you're already on file for your Facebook posts anyway. They're so. definitely watching us. <laughs> well, watching you. All right. So we're, we're going to call our source Alexander. Alexander tells me he actually had crossed paths with this guy that we're going to call Sam during the unfolding events of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and they became friendly. Alexander thought he'd probably not see Sam again after all that went down and their retires, you know, respective retirements or what he presumed was uh, Sam's retirement. And I love this story, but I guess apparently he unexpectedly bumped into him completely by chance at a relatively well-known getaway spot in the western United States. Groom Lake, Nevada? Or uh, Dulce Mesa, New Mexico? <laughs> no, this what is I... vacation. These guys oh, are retired now. Okay? I don't know where you vacation, but those sound uh, fun to me. I'm dragging you along so we can <laughs> both start to get a file going on us. Yeah, so we can both yeah. be shot okay. or disappeared. So here's my favorite part of this. Alexander bumps into Sam. We're going to call it a resort, okay? So they bump into each other at this resort. They're both with a group of tourists who are all doing one of those sort of prearranged experience things. And, of course, they recognize each other. But since Alexander doesn't know if Sam is undercover or if anyone even knows that Sam is a spook or still a spook or was a spook, likewise, Sam doesn't know if Alexander is still an intelligence, even though they're both older now and you would presume that they're both retired. But So what happened is in this group of people who are all like on this tour – is they exchange the subtlest of brief glances at each other and then pretended not to know each other at all. <laughs> well, no, I thought that was the first <laughs> protocol. You, you, in a crowd, you ask out loud in front of a group of strangers if the other guy's a spy, and then you just gauge his reaction, right? Uh, yeah, right. Uh, no, I'm not. Are you? No, you're a spy. <laughs> yeah. But this, this all So go you don't do that. That's yeah, what you're no, that's yes. not what you're supposed okay. to do. But this, this goes to our overall point, though. But just because something sounds fantastic, like this little meeting does to me, it's, it's, it's intriguing. 
what it shows is what you constantly say is this stuff really happens. These things are happening in the real world. Right. And when you hear about it in a story like the one we're telling you, oh, that doesn't happen. No, it does happen. Yeah. You just don't know about it. <laughs> it's happening all around you pretty much all the time. It's human nature to assume that just because you've never personally experienced something, that it's not likely or even possible or, or happening right now without your knowledge. But these things do happen, and in secret. That's why they call it secret spy stuff. <laughs> uh, but no, the point is that you're not going to know. You're Joe's citizen. You're not supposed to know. And think about all the spy stuff that really did happen that no one, maybe outside of a group of 10 people on the face of the planet, which are probably passed away, even know about or will ever know about. That's right. There's got to be a ton of it, and, and we may never find out about it. And that's kind of the, at the crux of it being a successful mission. Well, that's kind of the point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. so anyway, Alexander and Sam did make arrangements to meet later in a more controlled environment, and they caught up for old time's sake. And, that, and that's the end of that little story. But the beginning of explaining how Alexander was able to reach out to Sam on our behalf more recently – and asked Sam what he remembered about the Summerton Man story. Okay, now to be clear, they, when they met up, that was many years ago, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it was at the uh, employee cafe at, the, at Los Alamos? It's something, oh, okay. well, it was during the Cuban <laughs> right. Missile Crisis. Yeah, but yeah. then when they bumped into each other again, this was in the 90s at some point. Okay, good. I but they want... hadn't talked since then. Got it. Okay, okay, and just for this episode, though, you asked Alex to reach out to Sam. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, and so this is what Sam told him. Now, mind you, this was just a few weeks ago. Sam said he remembered the case, and he called it a top-drawer conundrum when he was still a freshman at the CIA. He pointed out at the time they were even sharing the notorious Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam code with all of their incoming newbies when they took the equivalent of Cryptography 101. When they were getting near the end of the class and the hard case studies got rolled out, there were no officers in the classes, and so all the students would be told if they could break the TSM code, they would get a commission on the spot. Oh, so I think you also got a CIA tote bag, right? If you, if you guessed correctly. <laughs> yes, right. Well, no, but they must have, with a bug. <laughs> if, that's, if that's true, they must have thought it was pretty unbreakable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's kind of a joke, but, it, sure. you know, seriously, no one – it was it was a thing that was going on. Sam also said he couldn't say anything more about the case and the CIA's position on it other than what had already been printed. And he then actually made reference to Jerry Feltz's book – which he was aware of but hadn't read, which, of course, we've read and incorporated information from it in this series. Right. Now, but what do you mean uh, he couldn't say any more because there was nothing more known or he couldn't say because it was still a secret? Yes. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. Yeah. It was, oh, I think it okay. was intentionally vague. Oh, well, it's, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, no, that's Because this job. was a via an email to, a, you know, through Sam yeah, to sure. me. So yeah, he doesn't know. He hasn't vetted you. Yeah, yeah exactly. You could be anybody. So, But no, that's a great point, is that these guys make a living of misdirection and subterfuge. That's right. And here's the part of that that's, I mean, this isn't exactly verifiable. We, you know, we're not going to be able to tell you who these guys are or where they are, get any more specific on it. But this is still notable, in my opinion. Sam told Alexander that when the Philby case broke wide open, there were many fingers pointing to KP being behind the mysterious death of this fellow, the fellow being TSM. Sam also said that red herrings were abundant in the story. So to be clear, Philby refers to a man named Kim Philby, who we're going to talk about here in a little bit. But first, I want to mention our first sponsor for tonight, Mac Weldon, yeah. which makes men's basics. 
and yeah. uh, very good. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what it said on the website. I had yeah. to, you know, how do you how do you explain this? But yeah. you know what the best thing? I it, this never occurred to me when before we started having sponsors. But the best thing about having sponsors is that we get free stuff. Well, of course, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're looking for it. And uh, you know, I've been trying to put in plugs for uh, fine whiskeys here and there. <laughs> yeah, right. Surreptitiously, maybe we'll get a crate. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> but you're right. You have to speak on it honestly and speak from a little bit of experience here. Well, and frankly, we don't want to put something in front of you guys unless we believe in it in ourselves. And, and to that end, I want to tell you that right now, I am wearing what is unquestionably the most comfortable pair of underwear I have ever had in my life. Like, <laughs> well, oh, seriously, I am throwing yeah, out yeah. everything else. <laughs> well, please don't. Well, have some No, but backups. I'm going to get more pairs. Okay, yeah, good, yeah, no, good. I am going... When the wear the one pair for the... No, well, the they gave us a little credit. I bought a couple of pairs of underwear, yeah. and uh, I see that you're wearing a very smart-looking T-shirt. Oh, sure. Yes, sir. I have three pieces here. Three pairs of underwear? Yeah, exactly. All <laughs> on the outside. No, I'm wearing uh, three different items that they carry in their general line of habitat. Yes. I've got the Mac welded socks. Then we got some funky kind of cool designs with those. Yes. Very comfortable. I'm wearing those socks as well. No, oh, you not the very pair that you <laughs> okay. have. Yeah, no, no. Just he's I wearing one. Own. Yes. Okay, the left one. My own pair. Uh, no, I've got the boxer briefs. And, and they have the different styles. They've got your traditional boxers. They've got your briefs, which are kind of like more of your bikini briefs. Yes. For those guys who swing that way. And then... Uh, have I've, way more self-confidence <laughs> yeah, than... <laughs> you look good in the, uh, at, the, at the shower at the gym. Yeah. And then they have the uh, boxer briefs, which are kind of a, a combination between the two. Well, that's what I have. And I got to tell you, I never realized I've been dealing with, <laughs> I got to be honest, underwear. almost a lifelong <laughs> issue yeah. of discomfort. Ah, yes. A sort of a long, slow attack on my junk every time I go anywhere. I don't <laughs> want to get to, into the TMI category. No one does. What, yes. I'm, what I'm saying is that I am thrilled with this underwear. I actually immediately wore them to a martial arts lesson, to a, to a Kenpo <laughs> lesson. Yeah. And again, I was like, this is a whole new level. I'm really yeah. able to concentrate now. So, <laughs> right. And also it's super well made and yeah. it has silver. It's antimicrobial silver. Yes. Let's be clear. It's not silver wires poking out. It's, it's, they're very finely woven into the material. And this is the thing. It, it, it's like underwear from the future. Okay, it's like underwear that astronauts would wear because silver has natural antimicrobial properties. So it helps with uh, yeah, bad <laughs> smells, <laughs> smells that you don't That's want. It's been particularly helpful for Forrest. Exactly. Well, he, right, because we're in such close quarters here. I'm doing it for all of us. So. Yeah. That's only a certain line, the silver line. And if you just want traditional Pima cottons and soft quality, durable materials, they have all of that. When you open the package, you see how well they're made. Yeah. The seams are so well sewn. You don't feel anything. Exactly. That's my point. Yeah. Is that once you put them on and you feel the comfort and the breathability, then you should forget about it. And for women, you want your men to look great as well. And guess what? Father's Day is coming. It up. is. It's a great gift. Don't get the tie. Yes. Get him something that he's going to enjoy wearing. Yeah, and their website is amazing too because we went there with our credits, you know, to get our samples, and it was so easy to go through. I got the product pretty quickly. So here's yeah. where the offer is for you guys. You can get a discount of up to twenty percent off if you go to MacWeldon.com and use the promo code Legends. L-E-G-E-N-D-S. So get over there. And here's another important thing to remember. They are so sure that you'll be satisfied. If you don't like your first pair, you get to keep it and they will still refund you. No questions asked, which is pretty awesome. Once again, go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using this promo code LEGENDS, L-E-G-E-N-D-S. All right. So we need to tell our listeners who Kim Philby was. Yeah, this is this is another rabbit hole, and I, 
I guess the first place to start with is we're going to talk about this group of spies who were caught in the 60s known as the Cambridge Five within the United States. And actually, the Russians called them the Magnificent Five after the Magnificent <laughs> Seven movie, if you can Ooh, believe also that. Also fans of that, huh? Yeah. And although there was five in number, the confirmed identity of the fifth person – is still a point of intrigue. Ooh. There's, you know, there's people that they, you know, there's people who say, yes. oh no, it's definitely this person, and other people are like, ah, I don't know, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Right. Our source from earlier mentioned that the CIA thought that Kim Philby's fingerprints were all over TSM's death. Figuratively. Figuratively, yes, yeah, and and Kim. We're going to talk a little bit about Kim, but Kim was actually named after a famous book by one of our favorite authors, Rudyard Kipling. And I probably shouldn't say he's a favorite author because I haven't read Kim. The book is called Kim, and it's about an orphan who was born in India. Yeah, I did a long time ago. but Yeah, I would love to read it. I haven't read it. I'm going to go ahead and be honest about that. But anyway, Kim was named for him. Kim, This Kim Philby was also born in India, but he was most certainly not an orphan. In fact, his dad ultimately wound up being an ambassador – to one of the kings of Saudi Arabia, whose name I have in front of me and I'm afraid to say. <laughs> Ibn Saud? I, Ibn Saud? Yes. Saud. He Ibn, was an advisor Saud. to him, I should say, not no, ambassador. No. Yeah, not he, ambassador. Was, he was kind of a, again, it, we talk about this a lot, that great era of adventurers and diplomats and statesmen, and his dad was a, a British Arabist. Yeah. You could say, uh, got really, went native, as I think as the British would say. He got really into the culture, learned several languages, Punjabi and uh, Urdu and uh, Persian, and uh, immersed himself, but also worked for a little bit of intelligence yeah. there and was an avowed and self-declared socialist. Yeah. So apparently not a red flag <laughs> when, oh, you're, when oh, you've got falling. Kim Philby, yes. which we haven't told you what he did yet, but yeah. he was ultra high level at MI5, excuse yeah. me, MI6. So we're, we're going to see why this is a little you've ironic. you got a guy in, yeah, here yeah. Who's, who's running spy operations, whose dad was a communist, just, you know, maybe <laughs> well, a red flag. I don't know. But we're going to come back to it. So anyway, this is a deep, dark, multifaceted rabbit hole, and we have to be careful about how far we get into it. Many respected folks have been researching and blogging about this angle online for years, and we will readily admit they know a lot more than we do about it. And if you really want to dive into this angle, we suggest you visit their websites. Uh, We're including links in our show notes for this episode, as we always do, but to these blogs, you guys can decide for yourselves how their approaches sit with you. We've had pleasant, albeit brief, and respectful interactions with both Gordon Kramer and Nick Pelling, and I want to talk to you a little bit about their blogs. Gordon is a former intelligence officer. He's in an organization of former intelligence officers, although his blog is independent of that. And he totally offered to be interviewed by us, but frankly, we just ran out of time. We've had so much, so many different interviews that we've done. This can't be 12 episodes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No disrespect to Gordon, but you should check out his website. It is called tamamshud.blogspot.com. And his whole angle is about micro His whole angle is about micro-writing, which is hard to say. I sound like Peter Peter (laughs) Cook. (laughs) Micro-writing. It's it's fascinating, though. Yeah, (laughs) It is unbelievable. Explain explain it just quickly, if you could. Well, I mean, I think for me, the simplest way to explain it is when you look at – I don't know if anyone's ever taken a really close look at any of the new currency in the United States anyway. I have. If you look really, really close, you'll see that some of these things down on the money that looks like a line when you look close at it is actually – it's actually words. Yeah. It says USA, USA, USA or something else like that. That is a form of micro writing. What he is talking about on his blog is the fact that people were trained to do this. Spies were trained to do this and hide information inside the context of the line of what ostensibly looks like a completely different word or some other yeah. message. Right. You've heard of micro dots, right? Yes. In the, in the spy world. Yes. Sure. So it's super fascinating. There is so much that you could talk about with it. It's, I know we always say this, but you could do a whole episode on it very easily. 
And he talks about microwriting as it relates to the code in the back of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam that was found in the back of the Hillman Manx that was the one that matched the piece of paper that was in TSM's pocket. Nice. Thank you. Okay. And then there was Nick Pelling, who has a whole website called cyphermysteries.com. That is also great, C-I-P-H-E-R. It's a pretty amazing website. They talk not only about the Tamam Shud case and current developments in it. He actually had emailed me a few weeks ago and said, we're on top of a breakthrough. I don't really want to talk to you right now. Yeah. It's too bad this isn't a few months later. Of course, that was back when it was part one. So, <laughs> <laughs> And it's been a few months later. Yeah, I should yeah. probably check over at his website. But he talks about it there. He also talks about the Voynich Manuscript on his site, which right. we know you guys love because you won't <laughs> stop emailing us about it. <laughs> well, we'll get to it. Yeah, I, I can't handle the Voynich Manuscript <laughs> right now. I, you know, I have a copy on order. Oh, uh, do you really? Uh, well, yeah, I'm sure it's the real thing. What, are they drawing it right now? It's, it's digital. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. No, no. We again, it's in the folder. But no, very. If you're into this kind of thing, very cool websites. These guys have done a ton of research. They're each their own rabbit holes. Yes. And last but not least, I also wanted to mention Pete Bowes, who lives in Australia, and he is written a book, a fictional book, that supposes who the Somerton Man might have been. The book's not out yet, but he's releasing it very soon. So you can visit his website, TomsBy2.com to check into it, and he has a lot of information on it. Like all groups of bloggers that are associated with mysteries like this, we found this from with Amelia Earhart, Oak Island, uh, all these groups. Uh, they don't necessarily agree on everything, but that's what makes it all interesting. And some of them don't agree with us, and we respect them for that as well. <laughs> yeah, well <laughs> They've yeah. all been studying it longer than we have. Yes, so, yes. And again, but, we're, we're not, you know, we try to look at all camps, and I think people are, are get that, our listeners, yeah. is that we'll give you an overview of what kind of what everyone's thinking to a shortened degree, and then, you know, what we're thinking, but we're not aligned, we're not fiercely aligned with any camps. Exactly. First, the first thing we want to do right now is talk about Kim Philby and how the rest of the Cambridge Five possibly relate to the Somerton Man's death. All right. Well, first off, why don't you tell our listeners what the name Cambridge Five uh, refers to? What does it mean? And uh, and then the meaning of MI5 and MI6. These are terms you're going to be hearing. And just explain what they are and what the difference is between the two. All right. So I've been confused about the difference between MI5 and MI6 for quite some time, not being – even though I call myself a little bit of an Anglophile. But yeah, and you love, you love Bond. Yes. That all takes place – well, they blew up uh, the, the MI5 headquarters there. Yeah, and V for Vendetta. Oh, that was Parliament. Never mind. Yeah, right. <laughs> Okay. I don't know why I mentioned that. Okay. Anyway, uh, the, the Secret Intelligence Service, SIS, commonly known as MI6. This is, by the way, straight from Wikipedia. We will go ahead and tell you that we're reading a Wikipedia quote here, which we don't do often, but I'm doing it now. The Secret Intelligence Service, commonly known as MI6, Military Intelligence, Section 6. See, just then I had to tell myself to slow down because oh. it's the Mountain Dew. Really? Yeah, it's hit me. It's like, wow. I sound like Would an you auctioneer. like some Tito's? No. Do we have any? Uh, uh Anyone uh, know where <laughs> they could again. send Tito's Forest. to? Uh, Forest I don't know. fishing I'm for sponsors. Saying, you know. <clears throat> anyway, or whistle pig uh, whiskey. <laughs> Any of the two. The Secret Intelligence Service, commonly known as MI6, Military Intelligence Section Six, is the British intelligence agency which supplies the British government with foreign intelligence. Similarly. MI5 supplies the British government with internal British intelligence. And originally there was, you know, MI7 and 9 and all these different sections, right. but they've all been folded in now. So Right, different different sections. And and here in the United States we have our counterparts, but as you know, famously the CIA 
is not allowed to operate within the boundaries of the United States. Supposedly. Yeah, unless, they, unless they're in conjunction. Or as my friend says, uh, yeah. my friend Steve says, supposedly. <laughs> right. He knows it's wrong and he says it because it makes me angry. Well, it's such fun as well. It, 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 unless they're tied with a domestic agency like the FBI, they can work in conjunction, but they're not supposed to be doing ops here exactly. in the United States. Yeah, like the black helicopters that mutilate the cows in or Colorado. M- MK Ultra, you know. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So again, folks, it happens. You got to realize there wasn't much of anything prior to World War One, and I think that's when the British realized we have to get something in place here. So that was kind of the onset of, of the development of the secret intelligence organizations. And for the United States, it was the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, during World War II. Because, yeah, the United States didn't have much. Right, they didn't. And apparently the reason they didn't have it was because they had this very noble sense of, well, you know, a gentleman doesn't read another gentleman's mail. So we were late <laughs> yeah. to the party there on the intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. That was something that I found well, out during sta- the course. Of- yes, yeah, standing on ceremony, as, as it were. Yes, standing okay. on ceremony. Okay. All right, so getting down to Kim Philby, before I start talking about Kim Philby, I wanted to start with this quote I found while we were digging into this mm. that he said that for me just summed up his power as a spy. He's largely considered one of the most successful spies of all time. The, all this – if you're watching Homeland <laughs> yeah. or you ever watch the series Smiley's People or Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy or – I can't even think. Every single spy thing that you've yeah. seen from the past like 30 years right. has been rooted in the story of Kim Philby, really. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. is It's not sexy James Bond action, which is – we all love that. But I also love the other the other view of it, which is – yes, it's John Le Carré, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It's – People stu- – it's somebody stuffing documents into a briefcase and walking out the building, and that's what he did. But he was good at it, and, and again, nobody expected it. All right, so here's the quote from Kim Philby. So I set about the business of removing my own chief. That's where he was at. There was a point at which <laughs> yeah. he needed to move up. He had yeah. so much power that he was going to get his boss fired so he could move up to the next position. Yes, well, with a little clandestine help from the Soviets. Yeah, so the Soviets helped him become the head of the anti-Soviet <laughs> division of MI6. All right, so, and we've already said this, he is and was the most famous British British spy of all time. Well, and, double double agent, let's, let's yeah, make double that agent. clear. Yeah, yeah, that, double yes. agent. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. so um, you just got to Google the videos of him. He's making a speech to the Stasi about his exploits in late 1963. It's mind-boggling. There's a monument that's been erected to him in Russia. One of the things that he talks about is how easy it was to do what he did. He used to just walk out of his office with briefcases full of information and give them to his handlers. He did that for years. And this highlights the lack of romanticism and getting away with this stuff back then and possibly even to this day. When you start to unravel the spy tradecraft and the story surrounding it, you have to keep that in mind. It's not always movie-making material yeah, like you said a few minutes ago. Right, right. All right, so I'd like to read this short description of the Cambridge Five from the International Spy Museum's website. This particular article was written by Thomas Bogart. When Soviet intelligence officer Arnold Deutsch met with Cambridge University graduate Harold Kim Philby in 1934, he came right to the point. We need people who could penetrate into the bourgeois institutions. Penetrate them for us. Philby eagerly agreed, beginning a lifelong affiliation with Moscow. The freshly minted spy also identified other potential recruits, and in short order, Deutsch managed to sign up four more Cambridge men, Donald McLean, Guy Burgess, Anthony Blunt, and John Cairncross. All were dedicated communists and demanded no financial compensation for their espionage services. 
In time, the Soviet strategy of recruiting young disaffected members of the British elite would yield rich rewards. The Cambridge Five quickly obtained key positions in the British government and intelligence apparatus, including SIS, Foreign Intelligence, MI5, Domestic Security, and the Foreign Office. Indeed, Philby's name was floated as possible director of SIS. Over the next couple of decades, the Five did immense damage to British and Western security. Through Cairncross, Moscow learned of Anglo-American efforts to build an atomic bomb in 1941. McLean and Burgess, both working with the Foreign Office, gave the Soviets documents of inestimable value on Allied strategy in the Korean War. And as liaison between SIS and U.S. intelligence in Washington, Philby knew of and betrayed to Moscow Project Venona. This is important. Project Venona is going to come up. The American effort to break encoded Soviet diplomatic messages. Indeed, it was Venona that brought down the five, as Philby learned the Americans had decoded a Soviet message that referenced McLean. He warned the latter through Burgess, but when Burgess and McLean precipitously defected to Moscow in 1951, suspicion was cast on the remaining three. Philby and Cairncross were forced to retire. Cairncross moved to southern France while Philby joined his fellow spies in Moscow in 1963. Blunt eventually confessed against a grant of immunity and stayed in England. The authorities' reluctance to prosecute any of the five has been attributed to a lack of hard evidence as well as distaste by the British upper class to confront their own. The Cambridge Five have captured the public imagination through their espionage exploits as well as their extravagant personal lives. Philby, a notorious womanizer, married four times and had numerous affairs. Burgess, a flamboyant homosexual, earned notoriety on the diplomatic social circuit for his heavy drinking. And Blunt, a renowned art historian, was knighted and became art advisor to Queen Elizabeth II. Yet for all their glamour, the fact remains that the five had blood on their hands. In 1949, for example, Philby informed the Soviets of an Anglo-American scheme to infiltrate Albanian exiles as saboteurs and insurgents into communist Albania. Consequently, their mission was doomed. Dozens of them were ambushed, killed, or arrested by the Albanian secret police shortly after their arrival. Philby showed no remorse, though, telling a British journalist shortly before his death in 1988, quote, I was serving the interests of the Soviet Union, and those interests required that these men were defeated. To the extent that I helped defeat them, even if it caused their deaths, I have no regrets, end quote. All right, so that sets the stage on the Cambridge Five. And keeping in mind that the spies in this ring were busted in stages, and there was suspicion about Philby being in the ring, but in 1955, he was actually exonerated as the third man of the group. He was quoted at a press conference after that as having said, I have never been a communist. <laughs> Which he was through and through. And also, as we said before, his father, St. John, or Sinjin uh, Philby, uh, was you know deeply leaning left, shall we say. And also remember... This was horribly embarrassing to the British intelligence community. So they just kind of wanted, I think, to forget about it. Yeah. And Philby, as a matter of fact, one of the things he said about why it was so easy for him to be successful was that they couldn't fathom that this aristocratic yeah. man of this class level would possibly ever be a spy. And it's why he wasn't really vetted or checked out. It's like, oh, he's got his bona fides. Let's, yeah. you know, <laughs> sure, run everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, because it's standing on ceremony. They're so entrenched in history and uh, class culture that it's impossible. You yeah. know, it's it's inconceivable. You're right. So now, even after Philby had been exonerated that first time, the new director of MI6 was convinced he was dirty. 
and he was still going after him. Now, you have to keep in mind, by the way, MI5 deals with domestic threats and MI6 deals with international threats. Right. So Philby possibly gets word that they're still after him in 1962 in Beirut, where he'd been working as a journalist as his cover for MI6. And in January of 63, he stood his third wife up for a dinner party and, according to Philby himself, left for Odessa on a Soviet freighter that departed so quick it left cargo behind on the docks in disarray. And the Soviets didn't confirm his defection until July of that year when they announced that he had been given Soviet citizenship and political asylum. So, Scott, what is the connection then to the Summerton man? Well, I'm sure there's those that would disagree with me, but I find the connection to TSM kind of tenuous <laughs> yeah. beyond some geographic connections and, of course, timing. There are those that make a connection from Philby to a man named Roger Hollis. Ah, uh, yes. Hollis was a British journalist and was the director of MI5 for nine years from 1956 to 1965. So Hollis was the director of MI5 in 1963 when Philby was working in Beirut for MI6. And the rumor was that Hollis was the one who warned Philby that they were closing in on him. And that led him to flee to Moscow. Right. So this puts suspicion on Hollis as being part of the ring or a Soviet spy himself, you know, or maybe it was just friendship. Who knows? But the thing about this that's interesting is that after Philby had left and the other two had been arrested, there were continued high-level intelligence failures. So somebody was still causing problems from the inside. All right, now pay attention because this is how it connects to Australia. Hollis traveled down there with the director of MI5, Sir Percy Silito, after the Venona project revealed that there was a Soviet spy ring operating out of the Soviet embassy in Australia and Canberra. Right, so listen to this excerpt from the Journal of Contemporary History, Volume 35, Number 2, from April 2000. In March 1948, Sir Percy Silito, Director General of MI5, flew to Australia to inform its Prime Minister, J.B. Chifley, that a spy ring had been detected operating out of the Soviet embassy in Canberra. The details Silito produced were vague and no suspect could be arrested. Then chaos broke out. The Pentagon banned all information flowing to Australia. Australian-British-U.S. relations became strained. The Australian Security Intelligence Organization, ASIO, was established under the aegis of MI5, but it failed to placate the USA, and the Chifley government lost the subsequent elections. What was behind these espionage sensations? The defection of the KGB man in Canberra, Vladimir Petrov, in 1954, was expected to produce the insider's expose on local spying, and although suspected spies were paraded, nothing happened. Then, in 1996, everything was made clear. The U.S. National Security Agency, NSA, released the Australian Venona Papers, comprising the decrypted Soviet cables detailing the operation of this 1940s spy ring. They had been sealed in the NSA's most secret archives for 50 years to avoid compromising all SIGINT, that signal intelligence, work. The exploration of these events by Australian historians has hitherto been handicapped by a lack of knowledge about the detail of this missing intelligence dimension. The revealing of that secret now provides the opportunity for these disjointed events to be viewed in their proper Cold War perspective. Now, a quick thing about that that I want to make clear that I actually did not build into our outline here as we're going over this is that Petrov, the defection of Petrov was a cover to explain how the information was revealed of these spies so that they could continue to use Operation Venona and not acknowledge its existence. Oh, so it didn't really happen? 
I, I, I didn't follow that. You know, yeah. every, there's so many sure, different sure, tangents. Sure, I didn't sure. go super far down that. <clears throat> I don't know if Petrov really defected. I think maybe he did, but then I think they pinned what they revealed in Venona on him. I'm not okay. sure. Forgive me for... But they hired you know. a guy, a Russian guy, Petrov, to work in security agencies. Well, yeah, well. I don't know. Who knows if he was even <laughs> agreeable to it, but they basically right. said, we learned all this from this guy. Right, and then he splits, goes back to Russia, so they can't really follow up with that, right? No, I don't... he's unavailable. To Australia. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I got to go in the other way. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, I th- yeah. Okay. I didn't know yeah. that. Right. Yeah. So. That's where they got the info. Well, that's where they said they got the info, the but cover. the info they really had was sure. from Project Venoma. It's all red herrings and deception. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So now, although he's not mentioned in that excerpt, we can put Hollis in Australia nine months before the Somerton man was found on the beach. That's right. It's a known fact that Hollis went to Canberra with Silito that March, and he in fact returned again in August just four months before the Somerton Man was found, to help set up the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, or the ASIO. So stringing it all together, we draw a line to the Somerton Man possibly being connected to espionage because Roger Hollis, a director of MI5, and a man who is rumored to have warned Kim Philby in Beirut that he was about to be caught, has now shown up in Australia to respond to the presence of a Soviet spy ring revealed to Australia by the U.S. through Operation Venona which had intercepted and decrypted Soviet communications highlighting the presence of a spy ring being run out of the Soviet embassy. Yes, and if Hollis is a spy, then essentially the Fox has come to the hen house to investigate what's going on in the embassy. And, and looking at all of this, there's still no obvious direct connection to TSM. The sideline here is that when the Canberra ring was discovered and the Pentagon iced out Australia – then Australia lost all access to U.S. expertise in nuclear rocketry, which they were feverishly developing at the Woomera Test Range, just 310 miles north of Somerton Beach. That's five or six hours by car. Now, there's some question as to whether Hollis was a spy, though, because this KGB colonel named Oleg Gordievsky, who eventually defected, was a secret agent for the British Intelligence Service from 1974 to 1985, and he stated on an ITV show in 2009 that the KGB was flummoxed by the accusations against Hollis about being a spy. Gordievsky said... Please do a Russian accent. (laughs) I I want this character. Gordievsky said, Why is it they are speaking about Roger Hollis? Such nonsense. I can't understand it. It must be some special English trick. Directed against us. Ah, that was sad. That's one character I like. I think uh, that guy should the come Russian, back. The, 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 the were, eternal Russian guy. Yeah. 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 Well, we're he's gonna... based on the uh, uh, Edward Goldman, who the, does the art review here at NPKSC, KCRW. Oh, nice. You I never like heard it. that? Oh, yeah. No, yeah, he's it's so pleasing to listen to. I love it. Anyway, so, okay. <laughs> All right. So after that, though, this other, this guy, Henry Chapman Pincher, who is an English historian who specializes in espionage history, came out in one of his books as saying, Hollis was actually GRU, not KGB, and they were different organizations. According to Militera.lib.ru, the methods of the GRU and the KGB were identical, but they had different mandates. The KGB's was to prevent the collapse of the Soviet Union from inside, not geographically inside, but inside the government. This means operations can be global. The GRU was supposed to prevent the collapse of the Soviet Union from the outside. Right. So it's, it's similar to the CIA and the FBI, but with looser geographic operational boundaries. Yes. I read that page, too, and it makes it pretty clear that an operative in one branch may not be aware of an operative in another branch. So maybe, just maybe, Hollis was GRU 
and Philby and his gang were KGB. Would they reveal this to each other? The two agencies are theoretically enemies, in a way. And however, on the other hand, maybe Hollis and Philby had confided in each other and were watching each other's backs. Hollis warns Philby, defecting KGB Colonel Gordievsky, makes a public statement saying Hollis wasn't KGB and maybe it's true, but would Gordievsky have known if Hollis was GRU? Possibly not. Well, the sad thing is Philby and most of the Cambridge Five wound up drinking themselves to death upon realizing that life in Russia was not all they had idealized when they became devoted to communism as college students. Yeah, and so that's (laughs) really – the stories are really sad about what – it was – Really not what they were expecting, especially after uh, defection. And... I think that, that happens to a lot of people who yeah. have ide- who are young and idealist, and uh, then you get to the reality of it. Yeah. Hey, just ask our good friend uh, Chris Stops. That's right. Uh, well, <laughs> you know what shout the... out to a <laughs> podcaster friend of ours who has yeah. a show called Eastern Border and does yeah. Uh, is Latvian and whose accent is genuine. Yeah, yeah genuine, <laughs> but he does a good fake uh, heavy Russian accent. Yes, he does. But if you want to know what life is really like, he lays it all out on the line. By the way, you should listen to Kristoff's show. He actually has had, uh, I think, five or six death threats. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right. But, yeah. Uh, anyway, so you getting, know you're doing something right. So getting back to the crux of the matter for the sake of this episode of the show, how does this connect to TSM? Well, there is no evidence of any outright connection to the Summerton man beyond his death occurring a few months after Operation Venona revealed the Soviet embassy spy ring in Canberra. And the fact that he died about 300 kilometers south of the Woomera test range during a time of heightened tension between the U.S. on an intelligence level and the Soviet Union at the Cold War level. The one thing that we can say is that our own confidential source confirmed that the CIA itself thought Kim Philby and the Somerton Man were somehow linked together. Speaking of all the spy stuff, I actually did an interview with award-winning historical fiction writer Amanda Sowards a few weeks ago regarding the idea of a code being in the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. And she had a lot of expertise as it relates to ciphers during the war because she's done a lot of research on it for her own books. She actually won a Whitney Award in 2015 for The Rules in Rome and has been a finalist two other times. You can actually visit her webpage, alsowards.com. That's A-L-S-O-W-A-R-D-S.com. And you'll also be able to find her books online, which she's going to talk about a little bit here. But so And she's from my neck of the woods. She is from your neck Moses of the woods. Moses Lake, Washington? Well, uh, she, yeah, she was born in Atlanta, but she grew up in Moses Lake. That okay. is near you, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's... We're not it's, supposed uh, to say where you <laughs> actually are from. Cause I don't actually... This, I'm not actually from anywhere. You live in the shadows. Well, no, I'm a, I'm a fictional uh, digital character. All right, so here we go. Let's cut to the interview. Hi, it's Scott. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to me this morning. What drew my attention to you was that you had that blog entry that you made about uh, poem code or poetry code. And I was wondering if you might be able to, you know, I, I don't know if you took a look at all at this case that we're doing this this story on right now, the Tom and Shoot or Somerton Man case. But there's some people that believe that maybe the, the, the Somerton Man might have been connected to spying. But when I when I was looking for information on this and I came across your blog entry and it seemed like you had done some research on the use of poetry and as for coding and ciphers, I thought that it would be interesting to talk to you about it and see what your take on it was. Yeah, and um, let me explain to, to you and your listeners kind of how the Hong Kong code worked. During World War II, agents were going behind enemy lines who would often memorize a poem and they would use several words from that poem to create a key to encode their message. And what they do is they take the words and they'd make it into a numeric key. So if Summerton Man was the key, 
they would write that out with no spaces and they draw columns underneath it and write their text in that. And then the first column would be you'd take Summerton Man and the A would be the first column and then you'd go with the E and you go down the alphabet. So then the first M would be column three and the second M would be column four and so on. And then once you've done that, you take the columns. So all the letters under A would be, you'd write those out first and then under E. And sorry, it's not great to, to explain it verbally. It's better visually. But they would do that. It was called transposing the message. They would do it with double transposition. So they do that twice. Okay. And basically you end up with a word scramble. Right. They would encourage agents to have, I think, 200 or 300 words so that it was difficult to break. It wasn't impossible to break. German cryptographers broke them fairly frequently. And so eventually they went from home codes to what they called worked out keys. And then they started with the numbers. They didn't have to have the words from the home. And that made it a little more secure. So if an agent was captured, they wouldn't remember what the numbers were. Whereas if they were captured and they had a poem code, the Gestapo could break them and find out what their code was. And they could break past messages as well. Whereas with the workout keys, it was harder to break past messages. But even with these workout keys, they usually had them on silk handkerchiefs or something like that. So if those were lost, they usually had a poem code for backup. And that was fairly common as the encoding method got more and more advanced and harder to break. By the end of the war, kind of an early Cold War, for for the time around the Summerton Man, my guess is they would probably be using one-time pads. Right. One-time pads, they used almost like a dictionary where there was a number for a word or a phrase, and then they would take those numbers based on what they wanted to say, and then they'd either add or subtract numbers. Okay. And the one-time pad was telling them kind of what to add or subtract. Those were practically impossible to break unless you repeated over and over again. So I know the Soviets got into a little bit of a problem with that, having others break their codes, because they were using their one-time pads more than once, and they are only supposed to use them once. Okay, so what she's saying right here actually exactly refers to Operation Venona. And the reason that they were able to break the codes coming out of the embassy in Canberra was because they were reusing – somebody was reusing one-time pads. Right. I don't know if she's specifically talking about that, but that when she said, I know the Soviets got in trouble because they were reusing one-time pads, that is what allowed them to decode the information coming out of the embassy that we referred to earlier. Yeah, that's a big thing to note here is you want to avoid any kind of detectable pattern because all patterns eventually become detectable. And the the Nazis got in trouble with that because there was one radio operator that kept using the sign-off phrase, Heil Hitler. And once you have that and you know what those letters stand for, boom, you have a way in. Good point. Okay, let's get back to the interview. Yeah, and so when when I look at the Summerton Man case, a pony code would be possible, especially for a backup. It probably wouldn't be their primary encoding method and how the book could be involved in that. I mean, there's a huge variety of ways that you can use a book to encode a message. You can, you know, say page one, paragraph two, word three, and have a one-time pad that adds something to that. When I look at the picture of the words that were scribbled in the back of the book, it doesn't look like double transposition to me, but I'm not 
you know, I'm not an expert on that. I've just done a little bit of research. Sure, sure. And they, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the one-time pad because in the case, the the gentleman who's done a lot of, or I would say almost the most research, there's two guys that are sort of at the lead of it. One is a retired detective mm-hmm. and uh, the other one is, is a professor in Adelaide. Okay. And when they were doing the research, the idea of the one-time pad seems to come up a lot. And he is an electrical engineering instructor and physicist, and he actually got his students to attempt to determine all the different types of ciphers that it probably wasn't. I mean, the only thing that the professor was able to conclude with his students was that it was statistically, it seemed unlikely that it was just gibberish, you know, because some people have put forth the idea that the guy was um, mentally unstable and he was just scribbling or something like that. And they've been able to eliminate that. And they've also concluded that what whatever the code is, it's probably rooted in English, Okay. They also said it may just be a simple mnemonic device like Roy G. Biv for the colors of the rainbow or something like that. Where okay, right, know, but, yeah. But no one can figure that. Obviously, you're not going to figure that out because it only exists in the head of the person who wrote it. Right, just something to help him remember whatever he needed to remember. Right. Yeah, and I'm guessing with with all their research, they probably can tell us that with double transposition, you'd have the same percentage of vowels to consonants as you would in a normal English text. And so they can probably tell if there's fewer vowels than normal or more vowels than normal. Right. And yeah, if it was double transposition, it's kind of short to be double transposition. And someone would probably be able to unscramble it with today's computers. Okay. Because double transposition, which is what the poem codes were usually used with, it was a challenge to break in the 1940s, but I imagine today with today's computers, it would be not as challenging because it's basically a word scramble. So you have a computer try a bunch of different combinations and they could figure something out. So so for you, do you think that there might not necessarily be a relationship between the type of text that you see in the back of the book and the poem itself in terms of the coding methods that you're familiar with, that they maybe they're not related? That's a possibility because I've read a little bit about the case and I looked at the picture. The picture doesn't look like double transposition, but it it's possible that it could have been some other form of encoding. And there's lots of forms of encoding that could have used the book in some way. The one that I keep coming back to the one-time pads and that seems like some type of a one-time pad using maybe that book. Right. If I were writing a novel, that's probably what I'd do. And that case would make a really interesting novel. <laughs> I know. It's a, it is an amazing story. It's kind of fun to fill in the pieces. And obviously it would have to be fiction because we don't know so many things about it. But it would be an interesting story. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if sometime in the next 10, 20 years, if some government declassifies something that sheds light on this, if it was a spy. Yeah. The French, I think they classified things for 100 years. And so in 1917, they had all these mutinies during World War One, and there was the whole Matahari thing. And so that should come out next year. And hopefully sometime soon after that, someone will translate it into English because there should be some interesting things coming out. And um, I don't know what the Australians and the Soviets do with their classified information, how long they hold it. But it'd be interesting to see if someone has more information that they just can't talk about yet. Yeah. Well, we have a contact that we spoke to, and it was it was very nonspecific, but it's a uh, an anonymous source who is a retired CIA officer, and he did indicate 
that when the Somerton Man case was going on, after they busted Kim Philby and the Cambridge Five, that mm-hmm. internally there were lots of fingerprints connecting that to the Somerton Man. Okay, because that would be really interesting because Kim Philby's involved in the right time frame, and he, I'm not sure if it was that time frame or later on, but he at one point was working for the British in charge of that counterintelligence. So even though he was a Soviet spy, he was supposed to be helping the British find Soviet spies. And so he could cause all sorts of mischief if he wanted to. So yeah, exactly. That would be interesting to tie it back to the Cambridge firing. Yeah. And when would you say that the Cold War started officially? You know, I read a book recently and it was about allied POWs and the Cold War started before World War II ended. This book talks about how, as you know, as the Soviets came in from the East and the British and the Americans and other allies came in from the West, they were liberating all these POW camps. And the British were getting a lot of Russian POWs and the Soviets were getting a lot of British and American POWs because especially with the, um, with the fires that were shot down, whether they were pilots or navigators or whatever, a lot of times, the Germans would put them purposely furthest away from their home countries as they could. So a lot of British pilots, they were very close to the Soviet Union. They were being liberated by the Russians. And the Russians would not hand them over until the British and the Americans promised to give them all of their POWs. And so there was a lot of tension there. It was it was kind of like Stalin saying, if you want all your POWs that we're liberating, you give us our POWs and give them to us right away. And there were a lot of clues at that time that the Russians were going to execute a lot of them. Wow. But the British and the Americans essentially caved because they wanted their POWs back so badly. And given their circumstances, I, I don't, I wouldn't say they made a wrong choice because the red army was massive. And I don't think anyone wanted a, a war with the Soviet union at that time. At that time, we still had to defeat Japan we didn't know that atomic weapons were going to work. And again, the Red Army was massive. Fighting them would have caused huge casualties. So, yeah, there were tensions there. And, you know, they went, they stretched back earlier in the middle of the war, even before the, the war began, before Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. You know, there was a lot of anti-communist propaganda. At the end of World War One, the U.S. had a detachment in the Soviet Union kind of trying to keep the peace, but... There's There's been tension between the Soviet Union and communism and, you know, the British and the Americans since the Bolshevik Revolution. But, yeah, it's hard to say when the Cold War started, but I would say as World War II ended and as we no longer depended on the Red Army to defeat the Nazis. Right. Certainly, we, we played a huge role in World War II, but if you look at the number of German casualties, most Germans died fighting the Russians because— that there's just more fronts, there were more battles there. The U.S. and, you know, the British and other allies certainly played a huge role, but there was a quote, and I, I don't remember if it was by Stalin or Churchill, but he said, Britain gave time, America gave money, and the Soviet Union gave blood, or, or something like that. I don't think I have the quote exactly right. Wow. So we couldn't be their enemy because we needed them to defeat the Nazis. But as soon as that wasn't needed anymore, I would say the Cold War started heating up. There had been things all throughout the war, especially that POW thing at the end. But we we couldn't make a big deal about them because we needed their alliance so much. But as soon as that wasn't absolutely necessary, yeah, I would say the Cold War started then. And I'm sorry, I'm kind of repeating myself. But 
No, it's it's super fascinating, and I'm I'm so glad that you took the time to talk to us because you you know so much more about this certainly than I do. It's it's greatly appreciated. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm happy to share things I've found fascinating and spent time researching. So, well, you clearly have a passion for it, and do you have a new book out that you'd like for us to mention, or that you want to mention yourself, or anything like that? Pending work. My newest book is called The Spider and the Sparrow, and it's a World War One novel. There's some spies. The coding in that book is, I mean, coding during World War One was secret inks and things like that. It's not as exciting as one-time pads or workout keys. If listeners are really interested in the coding aspect, they'd probably be most interested in the rules in Rome. Um, and that book is about two American spies in Italy leading up to Rome's liberation, and they're you know trying to stay a couple steps ahead of the Gestapo. And oh, that sounds great! There's a romance because one's a girl, one's a guy. So nice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. <laughs> I'm I'm actually looking forward to reading those myself. Oh, well, great! I, it's a it's a fun book. It was a fun book to write and a fun book to research for. And in general, people have enjoyed it when they've when they've read it. That's great. Well, we'll put some uh, we'll put some links to uh, both of those books in our show notes for this show and on our website. Well, hey, thank you very much. So that was A.L. Sowards, and she's a truly talented and remarkable person. She had a lot of interesting information that really shed light on the one-time pad description. It's very intriguing, no matter how you feel about the spy theory with the Somerton Man. Yeah, absolutely, and in connection to this very specific time period, right after the war, during the war and right after. Exactly. Okay, so we're about at the halfway point at the show, and it's time to talk about our other sponsor of tonight's episode, The Great Courses Plus. Yes, very excited about this. Because this couldn't be more up our alley, so to speak. Yeah. Really. I it's mean, perfect. It's, it's a perfect match. It ties into the Astonishing Research Corps, actually, or what we call the ARC, which is our group of researchers, which has, has grown to a point where we're having to close ranks on it a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's like out of control. We can't stop it. Yeah. I don't know what world domination plans they have, but, yeah, but things pe- are brewing over there. A few people have written in and asked us, how do we... How do we do our research? How, yeah. how do we dive in? Where do we go to learn things? Yeah, we had one guy ask specifically, like, hey, I love what you guys do. You've rekindled my fascination with these kind of topics, and I'd love to research on my own. How do you guys do it? How do you go about it? And I thought of several points in, in the response I did not yet send. It was, <laughs> yes, go to the internet, of course. You go to your library, but not many people do that. That's how you used to have to do it. Just pour over whole books. Well, it's the modern age here. We have better ways of, of delivering this information, which can be intense and dense, but in a great way. And you also have to be careful with the internet that's because a, there is that's a, a lot of bunk out there, a yes. lot, especially on Wikipedia. God bless it. I love it. It's a starting point for us a lot of times, but there's a lot of misinformation there or things that aren't properly cited. And you can, when you're really trying to look into something and dig into it, you can compile a whole bunch of information that is ultimately kind of completely useless if you're not Absol- careful. <laughs> absolutely. No, absolutely. I was I was going to say that is that you need a verifiable source. You know what I want, Scott? I, I want a, an authority. And this is an authority delivery system. It really on is. Any subject. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Great Courses Plus, it's, what's really unbelievable about it is it's access to over 6,000 lectures with 500 different types of courses. And yeah. these lectures are given by accredited college professors who are experts in their field. What we used to have in co- when you didn't pay attention, you didn't read the book and you had to do the report, you know, when I was in college anyway, you went and you got the Cliff's Notes, right? Cliff's yeah. Notes. I don't know <laughs> yeah. if there's people are still using them, yeah. but it's like, oh, Othello, I was supposed to read Othello. You get the Cliff's Notes, you get this little thing, <laughs> right. it tells you all the highlights yeah. and it takes about 10 minutes to read. <laughs> 
<laughs> to get just yeah. enough to sort of get a D on the exam. Yeah, you no, know, but still, <laughs> I want a professor, an accredited yes. university level professor, telling me what the what the look. Just forget about the other stuff. This is what's going to come up on the test. This, yeah. These are the bullet points. I want somebody who is an authority. And it's not just university lectures. It's everything that they offer. Photography, art, music, better living. Yeah. When you think about courses, don't just think about stuff that you may have learned in college and forgot about. Maybe you just want to brush up again. What's really interesting is they actually gave us a pass so we could go in and check some things out, which is, again, another wonderful thing about these sponsors. Like, hey, check our stuff out for free. And I got to tell you, it was awesome. We went and checked out the Turning Points of Modern History. This is a course taught by Professor Vejas Lulivichis. I've been saying yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> they, of course, Lulivichis. sent us the, yeah. the, the man with the hardest name. That's the guy that went <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah. it's amazing. Even just the beginning, it's the, I love the opening of it. It kind of reminds me of Amazing Stories. Oh, yeah. No, show. no. There's yeah. all this beautiful symphonic music and these graphics, and I'm like, I feel smarter already. Oh, no. It's, <laughs> <laughs> look, Scott and I are post-production, well, past professionals. We do not put up with crummy production, yes. post-production. This has amazing production value, yeah. production quality. And there's no droning on professors here. These guys are auditioned. Yes. And uh, they, they have to pass an on-camera audition. These guys are vivacious, engaging, captivating. Yeah, they're like, the, they're like the teachers that you had in school or college that you still remember their names. In the turning points of modern history, which was really cool, I remember learning – one of the – you know, I took away some really great facts. He talks about things that might have happened, which was pretty cool. It was like an, an alternate timeline of history, like if the Chinese had actually reached North America on the western shore. And it didn't happen, but if it had, how different would the world be today? And it is so fascinating. He, I remember him saying specifically that the Chinese had these treasure ships that were so big. They were 400 feet long. You could have fit the Nina, the Penta, the Santa Maria all inside the hold. Oh, That's yeah. how big these ships were and then they had servants who were eunuchs so they would be focused i mean it's just so crazy and on the ship it's like the doctors translators astrologers pharmacists navigators i was like the first thing that came to mind actually when i heard about this was battlestar galactica (laughs) but it was so cool and the class is only that particular the first lecture it comes in series you can watch them whenever you want it's only 30 minutes at at a time that's the great designation is that the great courses plus is a streaming service to anything you own your 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 phone your tablet your laptop when you're driving home why why listen to you know pm drive radio or just the traffic report learn something yes yes because you time. can watch it's that's important too you can watch video and yeah. see the professor but you can also listen to it as streaming audio yeah no that's what we were saying earlier the, the graphics really illustrate the message they show you maps interesting photos that go along with it it really helps to drive it home that's why i like actually like sitting down totally focused on my laptop to see the graphics. But again, you can just watch it on your tablet. You can stream it from any of your mobile devices. Yeah. So it's it's super convenient. Yeah. So if you really thought you could dazzle all your friends at your nerd parties that you're going to, <laughs> if you're listening to our yeah. show and you're an expert on Amelia Earhart or Oak yeah. Island or the Somerton Man, you can now go even further. <laughs> well, no, you can go authentic and get a yes. real, you can get some real, real knowledge. Bo- like you said, bona fides uh, right. later. So the great thing, like we said, is we got to check it out for free. And now you guys, our listeners, get to check it out for free as well. Exactly. Exactly. If you're looking for a way to start and you just want to brush up, there is no better way. This is it. So the Great Courses Plus is offering you guys a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Turning Points in Modern History that we were just talking about, a $215 value for free. All you have to do is go to greatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Start watching today. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. All right, now for the fun part. 
Wild speculation. <laughs> well, yeah, well, it's one of the most dynamic, maybe the most intriguing and dynamic angle of this whole story, the spy stuff. I want everybody to take a listen to this little piece of Kate Thompson, who was Jessica's daughter, talking about Jessica. It's from 60 Minutes Australia. Just listen to this little section. She certainly um, said once she was teaching English... Um, to newly arrived migrants and at the time there'd been a small group coming from Russia into Australia and as she said to me oh surprised that I could still quite understand Russian she dropped that bombshell yeah so when did you learn Russian well that's for me to know (laughs) okay so she spoke Russian you know I don't know. It's an interesting statement, but it could mean anything. I mean, Kate could be embellishing. This story has become so romanticized, and the people that are involved in it all have varying degrees of what they want to get out of it and what they want, how they want people remembered, especially when it's your own family. Absolutely. But Kate clearly thought that her mom might have been a spy. Yeah. But there's not a whole lot of evidence for it, I think, even within the family, necessarily. It's not like she went on a vacation to Moscow or anything. (laughs) Right. But when you drop little bomblets like that, it will tug you in a certain direction. When you say, well, I think my mom taught Russian immigrants how to speak Russian, and she was surprised how much she remembered from her days. Like, what What do you mean? What? What? Yeah. What Spy days? What are you talking about? Uh, Yeah. So here's the thing, though. If Joe was a spy, what if she did work for the Soviets, for example— what would be her job? Could she could she have been a recruiter? Did she have communist tendencies? I actually asked Professor Abbott about that. He yeah. said uh, no, that she knew people that were communists, but he also made the point that everybody was talking about communism at yeah, that time, right. and a lot of those people are not communists anymore, yeah. so it, it, much like Kim Philby didn't want to be after he got back to Moscow. But, <laughs> um, so, yeah. uh, you know— I think based on what we know, it's highly unlikely that she was a handler. I don't think she was had operatives in the field, you know, like no. Robert Redford did for Brad Pitt and uh, Spy Game. Thank you. Yeah. Good Lord. <laughs> a senior moment. Hopefully he'll, he'll let, he won't edit that. Day. He'll pull up that black yeah, amount of space that for, huge for 20 gap. seconds. Yeah. Uh, anyway. No, while I was fishing it in my, in my brain as well. <laughs> but... <laughs> At the time, though, no, and, and I gotta I say, I love that movie yeah. too. I couldn't what? remember. No, no, it was, uh, I haven't seen it in a long time, but it, it's uh, it's very interesting in the way that uh, that's a great movie. Uh, it, yeah, things yeah. play out because again, it's social engineering yes. is what they say that it is now. It's information gathering, and that's one big complaint or criticism against the United States intelligence apparatus is that we've forgotten about that. We've gotten too tech heavy. We don't have any good field agents. Yeah. That can worm information out of people. We now, don't have intelligence on the ground. We're exactly. also not prepared for asymmetrical warfare. Right, right. We're, We're not we prepared just, for the little guy. No, they, exactly. They think this could be solved with an algorithm. And a lot of it can. A lot, you can gather a lot of information that way. But really, it's pumping people for information. So in a matter of speaking, in, in that era, not, not to be you know too sexist, I guess, but a lot of women were used to pull information out of gentlemen, uh, in, not necessarily as, in a sexual way, but like, like no, but we, that, like we talked about the bar. A honey trap, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's called a honey trap. But it's, it's like what we talked about at the, at the hotel bar there. If you get a guide over a few drinks, just to drop a few keys here and there, those few words could be enough to let somebody know what you know. That's really what they want to find out. How much do you know? And what do you know about? A guy uh, sits down with a, uh, an intelligent, personable young lady, might spill a few beans here and there trying to impress her. Well, th- those are the techniques that were actually used. So what, what's her role? What uh, is she, she, could she have been an assassin? 
I always that, think of, uh, you know who I think of is uh, Loretta <laughs> Stellino, the woman assassin in The Sting. She tried to kill. Oh, the, Again, yes. we're talking about Redford for some reason. Yes, but, that's right. Well, yeah. no, you know, the, uh, Netanyahu dressed up as a woman and actually <laughs> when he was with the Mossad. He uh, did? And, uh, yeah. He, well, he was much younger than I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, no. The, Why uh, do you know these things? This is, listen to the news if you, you know, but I pay attention to probably things that other folks don't with, yeah. with, in, a, in a news story. But these things are, these these were techniques used. That one's a little crazier. I think I think he wasn't trying to, you know, woo some information out of gentlemen at, at a bar because up close, I'm sure that was not as effective, shall we say. However, women could be used Operation to... Operation Tootsie. <laughs> can we pull back? Uh, camera two, can you pull back a little bit? I want to make her look a little bit more attractive. <laughs> How how far back can you go? And then he says, how do you feel about Cleveland? <laughs> that, that's right. <laughs> I've seen it that many oh, times. Oh, yes. Tootsie's right. a great movie. It is. Well, yeah. look. All right. I, so this is this is the – we're asking her what would her role be? Could it be an assassin? Well, yes. Again, uh, as I would tell you, the, the great uh, Charles Bronson movie Telephone yes. with Lee Remick. He's a KGB agent trying to stop Donald Pleasance, who's this nutcase, and uh, she's called upon to deliver a lethal injection. Uh, but she's a CIA operative. Pleasance is apparently running around activating sleeper agents who were hypnotized, and he all he has to do is call them up and yes, and say a, a magic phrase, and then the guy goes crazy and blows something up. Well, we'll we'll be getting into that in another episode, as far as like a you know deep cover triggers. Yeah. But in any case, uh, yeah, she could have been trained for for that. Certainly not, you know, and and would be probably poisons. You know, something yeah. a, a lady could deliver. Well, the, here, and I want to talk a little bit about this, about the likelihood of an assassin. You know, because people are assassins. It's hard, far-fetched. I want you to take a listen to this for a second. We found a transcript of a CIA file titled A Study of Assassination. This is a 19-page typewritten file. It was part of a collection of CIA documents pertaining to operations PB Fortune and PB Success, which I – it's all about peanut butter sandwiches, I guess. But anyway, no, these were CIA code names of 1952 through 1954 attempts to topple the Guatemalan government under the democratically elected president, Jacobo Arbenz Guzman, and was authorized by President Truman. So – and here's my point. There were 58 redacted names in this document. All people the CIA had put on a list to be assassinated. This is 58 people yeah. that the government or a branch of the government, an intelligence agency, is saying need killing. That means there are real assassins. There are assassins out there for both sides. And look at Litvinenko, what happened to him after he said bad things about Putin. I love you, Putin. And he gave him the, like, <laughs> right. the, the tea and, and he even knew it happened. didn't matter. Well, yes, the assassinations do happen uh, on every side in every agency. Think of Georgi Markov. Remember, he was the Bulgarian a dissident journalist. The, is um, this the umbrella thing? Yes, With classic. Was Ryson or, or it was a, it was a uh, or right, it Ryson, 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 Ryson yeah. but it was a micro pellet fired from the tip of a specially designed umbrella manufactured by the KGB, who are in cahoots. I think I think the Bulgarian secret police or their intelligence apparatus wanted to get rid of this guy. Ask the Russians for some help. It's like, yeah, sure. Here's an umbrella. That sounds crazy, but it happened. And right. A, and, a, and a little short while later, he died of ricin poisoning. Yeah. Uh, for, again, from a pellet. I thought he was jabbed with it. Uh, he, I think he was standing on a bridge. Somebody came up behind him, and I think it, it fired the pellet. I thought it was it was injected, but but there you go. I, you know, like I said earlier in the show, I had even read that Tamam Shud was an assassin who worked on behalf of the mob out of Sydney or Melbourne or something. You wow, know, that's, I, that's far afield. I couldn't corroborate it, but what you're going to find out here later is that we are pretty sure, thanks to research done by the ARC, 
that the Somerton man lived in Sydney. Yeah. Prior to meeting Joe. So when you're in this territory, you're really grasping at straws, but that's what we do. We like to go like off the deep end when we start talking about theories. Well, that's what's interesting. Why go with the obvious? Of course, we always say the obvious is probably, you know, it's Occam's razor. Well, look, start there. That's why we say start there with the obvious, then branch out. Because again, if you're like us, and obviously you're listening to this, you're of that mind as well. Go out there, check out everything, eliminate the things that don't make sense to you. All right, so let's talk about Joe. This is another theory that popped into my head early on. Professor Abbott has – this theory has occurred to him and a lot of people who have looked at the case. And that's the whole angel of death, serial killer, maybe even an angel of mercy. We're going to get to that here in a second. But that – some of that theory, though, is predicated on connections between Alf Boxall. Yes. Whose friends called him Alec, by the way. I don't know if we said that earlier, but apparently his friends called him. But Alf Boxall, the Somerton man. And George Marshall, the guy we mentioned who probably killed himself. Yeah. It, this is, and that's the, that brings me to actually to my next point is that connections between all three of those beyond the rubat of Omar Khayyam are tenuous because Boxall had his copy mm-hmm. that Joe gave him or Justin gave him. And Marshall had that copy where he had circled the stanza where he was found dead outside the hospital, not far from where right. Joe worked. And then there's the copy associated with the Somerton man. Mm-hmm. When you really look at it, Boxall's still alive. He wasn't killed. Right. The other guy almost definitely probably killed himself, unless that's a really amazing cover story about his insanity that his own family did, which is possible. I guess, but he, they, according to them, he claimed that, yeah, he was, he was just looking for a good time and place to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So was she a serial killer? Was she finding, I, I, (laughs) we've, we talked about so many movies tonight. Yeah. One of which I thought of again, when we first started this show was The Natural. Oh, yeah, Barbara Hershey? Yeah, in The yeah. Natural, Barbara Hershey becomes obsessed with, oh my God, it's Robert Redford again. What, what is that? It says real Redford. No, there's a connection. <laughs> Coincidencia? Yeah, well, so in The Natural, Robert Redford plays a baseball player, and he's yeah. the best in the world, or the best in the United States anyway, yeah. and this character, she becomes kind of obsessed with him, right. and as a result, she uh, tries to kill him. Yeah. That's actually based on a true story, believe uh, it or not. yeah. Which I looked up at one time, and now I can't remember. But you can find it. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, a, we, it's not a tangent we need to go down right now. But the point is just that, oh, what if Joe was like, you know, she would find these lovers, and then she would give him a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, and then she'd try to kill him. Well, like a Black Widow. Yeah, well, we had talked about this before, and I, I, it's so, I have no idea the place and time when it happened. But what we had mentioned is that that is a real phenomenon, and it's usually... Somebody, men and women, in fact, uh, one of the last famous cases I'd heard, or the most notorious, it was a, a, a man, I think in his 30s, who was a, also a nurse. Who oh, yeah. Been, uh, yes, that who guy. had been delivering lethal doses of medicines, medications found at the hospital because, and again, it's a psychological thing. He thinks he's helping these people along. He thinks he's euthanizing folks. Yes, he's, he's like, look, they're far gone. They're suffering. I just, I just hastened it for them. But really, it's tied into... I get to kill these people and justify it in my own mind as being helpful. Well, so listen to this. When I asked Professor Abbott about this, which I did, I was especially now in light of the fact that he's married into the family. Yeah. I, I felt a little strange about it, but I was like, had you ever thought that maybe Joe was a serial killer? You know, or, so, <laughs> right, yeah. And he actually said, as an investigator, I stand at a dispassionate distance. And so I have considered the serial killer hypothesis myself. I dismissed it because, A, she has no proven history of anything like that, our record or even innuendo of physical harm to others. B, 
I searched the literature that psychologically profiles nurses that serial kill their patients. And so it does tick some boxes, but not enough. My own parents ticked the same number of boxes, and they were no killers. There basically is nothing there to make her stand out as a killer. However, and I thought this was really interesting, those that knew her confirmed she supported euthanasia Mm. intellectually. So now whether she actually euthanized anyone who asked for it, right? who knows? Maybe. But we simply can only speculate without hard evidence. A possibility that I do entertain is that either herself or George stripped the body of any ID after it was found dead rather than actually being involved in the death. Mm-hmm. And we're going to come back to that. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, here's, right. here's the part of this email, though, that freaked me out a bit. Here's something spooky I forgot to tell you. When I interviewed one of Joe's old friends, the friend told me that Joe's favorite novel was Howard's End by E.M. Forster. I asked the friend why Joe liked that book. The friend said she didn't know, but speculated that Joe would have loved the grand house that is at the center of the story. I thought nothing of this, but one day decided to go to Blockbuster and get the Hollywood version of Howard's End starring Anthony Hopkins. I watched the movie and fell off my chair. The story is about a lady who lives at Howard's End who gets pregnant out of wedlock, sound familiar, (laughs) and has a boy. The father of the boy is struck with the flat side of a sword by a family member in order to scare him. They didn't want to harm him by using the sharp side of the blade. But the man died. The autopsy revealed he had a pre-existing weak heart and died of fright. Could this be Joe's way of telling us it was all an accident? Did TSM have a pre-existing illness that she maybe gave him a tablet to help, but he died because she accidentally misdiagnosed the problem? Or was it not an accident? And the book was used to fuel a fantasy that it was all an accident to blunt the guilt. Don't know, exclamation part. <laughs> Which, best, Derek. best Derek. <laughs> Again, I love a, it. It's another juicy nugget dropped on our doorstep. Yeah. You know, by Professor Derek Abbott, which is, we just love this because it's like, what? It's like, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, that, who knows? Again. Yeah. And, and he, he was just as bewildered. And so it adds more fuel to this fire. Yeah. Every time you look, there's another layer. It's like an onion. It just keeps peeling yeah. and peeling and peeling. It's like Oak Island even. Whatever you're looking at, things just keep going down this hole. Right, right. That's All the right. nature of a lot of mysteries, I, I believe, that are not self-sealing, as right. you say. So. Right. So, All right. So now let's move on to the next theory, the jilted lover, the love triangle thing. And this is one of my favorites as a possibility, I have to say. Yeah, I hate I'm to ag- agree with you. Okay. But... You hate to agree with me. Well, I no. I, we just do a lot. But, <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Because we, we think a lot, uh, uh, I think structurally, uh, intellectually, or, or just uh, uh, as journalists, yeah, fake journalists. That's what we are. <laughs> we're just no. You know, what I'm saying is I think that uh, we we see the we see the benefits of this storyline, uh, but again, not discounting the others too much. So right. Well, I mean, here's the reality of it. We can only speculate on the actual relationship between the Summerton man and Joe, and right. how close were they? Was it just a one night stand? Because we're we're going to go ahead and say I'm going to go on record at saying this. Yeah. There is no question that Robin Thompson was the Summerton man's son. Okay. I think there's no question of that. Yeah. Professor Abbott thinks there's no question of that. I, do you agree with that? Yes. Okay. Uh, no, just again. <clears throat> they look alike, for one thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the genetic the genetic abnormalities. Right. Both I of them. Absolutely can say with all confidence that there is more to suggest that he is the offspring of Joe than, than not. Right. So yeah. we know that unless she was artificially inseminated, there right. is absolutely no question yeah. that at one point she had some kind of relationship with the Summerton man. Yeah. Now, was it a one-night stand? 
Was it one-sided? Was it – or was it reciprocated? Maybe they both really, really cared for each other. Yeah. I mean she was a nurse. She obviously saw the rewards in caring for people. So imagine this scenario. Joe and the Somerton man meet in Sydney or Mossman outside of Sydney. They flirt, carry on, and eventually become intimate at least once. Joe becomes pregnant. Now we get into the choose-your-own-adventure territory. That's what happens when you start speculating. She tells the Somerton man that she is pregnant. A, he offers to marry her, and she says no. Or B, he flees in terror at the fact that he had a one-night stand with someone. Uh, Oh, no, there's a child. Yeah. Okay, so who knows? Why would he choose one over the other? A, maybe he's a spy. He can't be tied down. Yeah. Or whatever else. B, she's a spy. She can't be involved with him. Right. <laughs> these are these get increasingly yeah. ludicrous, by the way. They are both spies. <laughs> well, yeah, no. And they, but they can't tell each other. <laughs> yeah. Or they did tell each other, and they know that it can't work. This right. is a really great uh, romance novel, I think. Now, yeah. she's already involved with George Thompson, and he provides for her. That's yeah, the thing. That's and an it, important uh, point to note is that she's already established an arrangement for herself that seems to be working. Right. And so she has to be practical. It's hard to say, but we know that she and George had known each other since they were very young in Mentone. Who knows what stage their relationship was in? As Professor Abbott said, there was a story there was a story that he prevented her from killing herself. So and we'll come back to that later. Or maybe Joe doesn't tell the Somerton man that she's pregnant. Maybe he's out of the scene before she realizes it. Perhaps he gets word that she's had a child and returns. Maybe he returns out of love to convince her to be with him. The Ark has found – and when I say Ark and whenever we say Ark, just going forward so everyone knows, that stands for the Astonishing Research (laughs) Corps, which is our group of really amazing volunteers. Also an upcoming episode of another kind of Ark later on. (laughs) But the the Ark has found evidence – that TSM had most likely been in Sydney. Could they have met there? TSM may never have known that Robin existed. After all, we have no evidence that Robin and TSM connected at all just prior to his death. But it's possible they could have met up somewhere. Of course, they're vacuuming the pool next door. Oh, is that what that is? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to keep going now. <clears throat> yeah, keep going. We have a, we have a mission. So <clears throat> there are other people that think that TSM was ill. Some members of the Ark think he might have had polio. So the, the case for that later. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and we, we need to uh, – that's going to be a shout-out to Chris Cogswell, who's one of our highly active members yes. in, the, in the research corps. But so what if he was feeling ill or feeling bad or even aware of a serious illness? And Joe, being a nurse who intellectually supported euthanasia, yeah, yeah. <laughs> provided him either with some medicine to help with his symptoms or something to help him end his life. Ah. Would either one of those go further towards explaining the fact that she nearly fainted while pretending not to know who he was when she viewed the plaster bust? What if she gave him some something mild or something and, and, yeah. and it unknowingly triggered his death? And then she comes face to face with the consequences of her actions, <laughs> right. which maybe yeah. were unintentional. Yeah, exactly. Here's, here's your two aspirin that, that killed you. Or, you don't know, no, you don't know. But obviously she freaked out. Right. She, it was obvious that, that she knew who this guy was by sight. Yeah. And that she made attempts not to associate with herself in any way with this gentleman. Yes. Yeah. All right. Moving on to another one of my favorite theories. I get to have more than one favorite, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead. The idea that the Somerton man was a black market dealer. 
In and, what? Yeah. Well, in all kinds of things, because yeah. thanks to the World War II rationing, there were all kinds of markets that had emerged. I actually didn't know a whole lot about this, and Professor Abbott was the first one that introduced me to this idea, but then we kind of dug down on it. So during World War II, there was price controlling and rationing so that governments at war could make sure that resources critical to the fight were available for the fight and not being used up by civilians. Right. So – from this, just like with prohibition or any other goods that are denied, a robust black market develops, and there was one in Australia too. Now, I found a great thesis online entitled Profits Over Patriotism, Black Market Crime in World War II Sydney. This was written by Timothy Blum for his BA in History in 2011, and he's posted it online because I guess with the thesis you have to publish it, right? I guess. Not not sure. Didn't know you had to do that, but uh, yeah. but we're glad he did. Yes. Yeah. We're we're not educated to that level, so we can't <laughs> speculate on it. But, um, so let's say for a minute that TSM was a black market dealer. Now, I want to get some context on what that would have been like. So here's some excerpts from Mr. Bloom's thesis. The introduction of coupon rationing in 1942 saw wide-scale stockpiling of supplies as people sought to take advantage of scarcity by selling on whatever they had. Another thing that he points out later is he said uh, most offenders – and some of these he took from other sources. So we're referencing – I'm referencing uh, that first quote was from page one of his thesis. This is from page three and four, which he took from another source, which is cited there if you Mm -hmm. go to the original paper, which we have a link to. He goes on to point out that most offenders were not large companies or organized criminals, as some have argued, but individual merchants with inside knowledge of the trade and no previous conviction. So are we painting a picture here? of what the Somerton man might have been. He also said, because this was sort of the crux of his thesis, it was more about the moral ground and the difficulty between the law and how the law treated black market operating Mm -hmm. with respect to war rationing and the morality of it, which which is – it's pretty complicated. It's it's interesting because it's like, oh, no, it's okay. These people need this stuff. You know, I need bread. I need water. I'm pregnant. I don't – you know, whatever. So – It was apparently a very vague area. So um, excerpting from page seven of the thesis, both men and women had different views of such conduct. The former maintained a fixation with the illegal sector, while the latter felt that it was simply getting hold of the necessary items. In the eyes of the public, a soldier buying bottled beer and petrol coupons in King's Cross was participating in the black market. But a local shopkeeper who stockpiled dress material or biscuits for a frequent buyer was looking after their customers. Perhaps Salt put it best when it stated at the end of the war, quote, there are no scruples in the black marketing business so long as you play ball with the blacketeer and don't mind being fleeced, end quote. Most probably everyone used black markets at one time or another, even if only for a special occasion. But those who got caught or ripped off often cried the loudest. Uh-huh. On page eight, there's an additional quote. It says, people who are mentioned in this thesis, and that's actually a reference to another thesis that he's referencing, yeah. but, uh, with few exceptions, are not professional criminals, but seemingly honest citizens. So I'm reading this thing about the black market in Sydney when I come across some particularly fascinating tidbits. The first one is that there was a lot of black market activity happening on the wharves. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you hear that, you think, yeah, of course. It was definitely happening there, the wharves. Wharves are famously where bad stuff's going down. (laughs) On the waterfront. Yes, on the waterfront. So now we need to remember that TSM had materials that suggested the possibility that he might have worked at sea. Yeah, a lot of people have thought from the contents of the suitcase. Yeah. He had the stenciling material. 
I immediately wondered, and I think Professor Abbott pointed this out to me first, but like, could that have been used to label crates? Could that have been used to label stolen goods? Right. Or right. maybe it, he worked perfectly legally and he was required to label things that were being shipped. We don't know. Yeah. So now this is an interesting point because it also ties back to the fantastic black marketeer or the mundane and that and a possible explanation for the items found on him. Yeah. Okay. And in the suitcase, because now, and this is another thing that that uh, Professor Abbott said that I found interesting, and, and I'd read this elsewhere as well. During wartime, a lot of people were getting used clothes, clothing, any kind of material. Think about this: rubber, steel, gasoline, petroleum, oil, fabric. Everything was hard to get a hold of. It had to go to the war effort. So yeah, and they were of, allocated a certain amount a year. Exactly. And when you went through it, you were done. You You're didn't done. have any more. Right. You're yeah. done. So yeah. a lot of people were buying used clothing who may, you know, have felt, you know, that was beneath them or they didn't want to be seen with it. So it was common practice to clip the tags out of your clothes as just as it was common practice to write your name in your clothes. Right. Because you didn't have a whole tremendous wardrobe, you know, floating around like we do now and you're just giving stuff to the thrift store willy-nilly. So so people were getting used clothing would maybe cut out the tags that were in them before from the previous owner, T. Keen, something like that. Yes. Uh, and He's going to come up again. Yeah. Exactly. And the aluminum comb. Aluminum combs were traded amongst soldiers. Aluminium. Aluminium, right. They actually the, – usually it's a different pronunciation, but the, there's an it's actual – It's actually spelled different. Yeah, it's actually spelled different on the there's end. There's an extra I. Aluminium. But, yeah, so – and again, the juicy fruit gum, the, Ameri- the, the cigarettes in the, uh, in the expensive pack – with the yes. cheap cigarettes. Yes, the 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 conceitous, or vice versa. The conceitous cigarettes, the expensive cigarettes in with the arm, cheap pack. With Army Club cigarettes. With Army Club, which some people say, oh, it's a spy thing. It's That was what he wanted to smoke, but he wanted to appear another way. Right. But you might also appear this way out of out of pride. Again. Wait, but of course, yeah. that doesn't make sense because he would be taking pride in the cheaper cigarette, right? Well, again, some people do that. I, like I I'd mentioned before, taking generic cigarettes and putting them in an NA, the Dunhill pack. Uh, something something fancier, but really, what yeah. We're but this was to, the other way around. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's a mishmash. It was opposite. Of, that's what I'm saying. But there's yeah. a mishmash of stuff going on. Is that that's why some things may lead investigators into a wholly different direction because they're not making sense out of nothing. Again, it's it's just like where did he get the gum? He traded that for some other item from a guy on the train. Right. Who knows where these things came from? Now, some things, yes, like the American striped tie. That's specifically American, you know, but where did he get the tie? Yeah. Was it used? Yeah. Did he get some of these items from an American that he'd met? Yeah. These are unanswerable questions, but they do paint a picture, but is that picture accurate? All right. Well, and is that, which this brings me to my, the, the next thing in the thesis that jumped off the page at me, something that I hadn't really thought about, and it started, it, it painted a very... A bigger picture. Those of you who've heard the whole series, this is going to tie a bunch of things together. And one of those things is taxis. Taxis are brought up specifically in relation to the black market. Yes. Now, why is this important? The the author of the thesis suggests on pages 27 and 28 that the war had a profound effect on the taxis of Sydney. And overnight, it seemed that they had managed to transform themselves from being mere carriers of people to four-wheeled grocery stores, offering everything from bottled beer to building materials. Thus, it soon became common for taxi drivers to be seen in the odd hours of the morning loading and unloading suspicious packages from the boot of their vehicles. Uh, For you Americans, that's the trunk. (laughs) To be sold on to a needy customer. But why taxis? Das, he's referencing uh, someone else, which, um, again, we're taking this 
from pages 27 and 28 of his thesis to go back to the sources that he's referencing, take a look at his thesis, which we're providing a link to. Das wrote into the bulletin and described the following conversation between himself and the driver of a taxi, which seemed to be full of blue metal, a rationed building material. Do you know what I have to pay for petrol on the black market? Said the driver. Seven bob a gallon. New tires cost me 60 quid on the black market. Why don't the government let us have some tires and give us 150 gallons of petrol instead of that ridiculous 75 that forces us onto the black market? If taxis were forced onto the black market by restrictive rationing, it certainly did not help matters that there were large numbers of U.S. servicemen willing to pay large sums of money for whatever they could get. Nor should it be surprising that taxi drivers seemed well represented in syndicates dealing in petrol especially when it is factored in that the returns were high and public transport restrictions forced most people to pay for whatever transport they could get. All right, so you, you need to see that thesis. We're providing a link to it. It has a complete list of all the author's sources. It's 100 and, uh, 120 pages, 20,000 words, I remember him saying. All right, so why did this jump out at me? Here's mm-hmm. the curious thing. George Thompson, George Prosper Thompson, Joe's husband, and the person who raised Robin – with his as his own son, yeah, was a taxi driver, and when he and Joe were growing up in Mentone, according to Abbott, he was known as the man who could get you anything. Yeah, sounds to me like George might have been a black market dealer of his own, or he had his own little black market. And it, there's no reason not to expect that during wartime, if the taxis in Sydney are going through all this, the taxis are yeah. in other areas as well. Well, I mean, he, he drove long distances as well to, to other get towns. towns. Specifically yeah. to pick things up. Exactly. So there's, there's something going on here. So And later in life, he became a car dealer. So my question is, could Thompson have been a blacketeer himself, which is what they called him, a black market racketeer? So that then raises the specter for me that Thompson and the Somerton man knew each other, possibly from their younger days. What if, what if the whole affair was a love triangle rooted in black market culture? What if TSM was a friend of George's and he and Joe had had an affair? Now we know George and Joe had kind of a loosey-goosey relationship, but if TSM and Joe had been involved, might that have made George upset? So Professor Abbott said that as near as we can tell, Joe and George started getting involved in one way or another around 1947. Joe left Sydney in November of 1946. Thanks to researcher Chris Cogswell from the ARC, we've been able to back time the likely conception of Robin based on his July 1947 birthday. Chris took into account natural variances and pregnancy links, and was able to conclude that Robin was likely conceived between October 7th and November 10th of 1946. By that deduction, Joe left Sydney pretty much as soon as she found out she was pregnant. She did not go directly to Adelaide, by the way. She went to Mentone, home, where she grew up and where George grew up too and had been the cab driver. George and Joe then moved to Adelaide, and he opened a car dealership. Now, this is pure speculation, but what if when George found out that TSM was the father of Robin and TSM tried to reinsert himself into the picture, George somehow killed TSM or had him killed through black market connections, possibly with ties to organized crime? Now, I'm not 
casting aspersion on George's character. With I'm, I want to be totally respectful to him and to his surviving family. I'm just putting out a theory. I have nothing to base this on. This is pure conjecture on my part. I just want to make that absolutely clear. But what if George and Joe conspired to hide TSM's identity to protect themselves from a murder charge? Also, by this time, George was a full-blown car dealer with a showroom and everything. He was running what on the surface would have been a respectful business. And Professor Abbott has made it clear to me that they had money. They had good money. She dressed very fashionably. Mm. There was a lot of income. I'm wondering if George was a successful black market, you know, blacketeer. Mm -hmm. He saved up his money from doing that with his cab work during the war rationing and all that. And then he used that money as seed money to start his business. Just, you know, as a car dealer where he had the showroom and everything. Yeah. I, th- I think it's obvious uh, you can make it a connection to him, e- even on the up and up in a certain way. But he was ferrying supplies yeah. between customers and towns. And I think that's a good the, – the man who, who could get you anything, I think that's what that means. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about possible methods of death, which we looked at a lot when we first started – when the ARC first started this investigation, we went pretty far down this road. But I don't feel like it was super fruitful, so I don't want yeah. to spend a ton of time on it. Um, but there's been speculation over poison versus natural causes and, and possibly even suicide. The ARC did come up with two possible medical conditions. One, Chris Cogswell came up with, and I came up with the other one, I'm proud oh, to say. Oh, very good for you. Um, but, but I stumbled across it. It wasn't through any <laughs> right. super brilliant uh, deductive work. You, you but, stumbled upon. Uh, one thing I want to I read a little bit about the poison idea here. Uh, this is something that Tess had worked on earlier, and she provided this link when she was doing early research on this. She found some information that was on a website called Everything Explained Today, and then it had a, a subheading for the, the Tamam should case. Tamam is misspelled, by the way. It wasn't how to, how to poison your one-time lover. Yeah. So I'm going to read this excerpt here. It says, Cedric Stanton Hicks, professor of physiology and pharmacology at the University of Adelaide, testified that of a group of drugs, variants of a drug in that group he called number one and in particular number two were extremely toxic in a relatively small oral dose that would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to identify, even if it had been suspected in the first instance. He gave the coroner a piece of paper with the names of the two drugs, which was entered as Exhibit C-18. The names were not released to the public until the 1980s, as at the time, they were quite easily procurable by the ordinary individual from a chemist without the need to give a reason for the purchase. The drugs were later publicly identified as Digitalis and Ubane, both of which are cardinalide-type cardiac glycosides. He noted the only fact not found in relation to the body was evidence of vomiting. He then stated its absence was not unknown, but that he could not make a frank conclusion without it. Hicks stated that if death had occurred seven hours after the man was just seen to move, it would imply a massive dose that could still have been undetectable. It was noted that the movement seen by witnesses at 7 p.m. could have been the last convulsion preceding death. Cue sirens. (laughs) <laughs> early, early in the inquiry, Cleland stated, quote, I would be prepared to find that he died from poison, that the poison was probably a glucoside, and that it was not accidentally administered. But I cannot say whether it was administered by the deceased himself or by some other person, end quote. Despite these findings, he could not determine the cause of death of the Somerton man. 
Uh-huh. So that's just, a, there were a lot of people that thought digitalis might have been involved, but it would have had to have been, according to Tess, it would have had to have been small doses given over a long period of time. Right. It just for me, it seems unlikely. Yeah. You know what? But not it, any more unlikely than a lot of the stuff I've said <laughs> in the past 20 minutes. <laughs> it's all unlikely. <laughs> all very unlikely. But no, uh, here's a good point. And yet another James Bond reference. Yeah. With digitalis, there are very dramatic and distinct side effects. Yes. That happened to you when you were being poisoned. You remember Daniel Craig, Casino Royale? Yes. The first one, he's at the bar, shaken, not stirred. Do I look like I give a damn? Yeah. Well, that's what the lady pours into his martini, his Vesper martini, I believe. I think that's the case is that it was digitalis. Right. So, and that's the thing about digitalis that you have to remember. It screws up your heart to such a degree that you are sweating, blurry vision, you're going nuts. Yeah. Uh, Heart is racing and uh, it's just going all over the place. You're not comfortably lying with your head correct against the seabed wall. Right. Having a smoke. Right. He'd probably... Like James Bond, like Daniel Craig, he'd probably be going kind of goofy, which would have been noticed by the passersby. This guy's thrashing around wildly, vomiting. And that's the thing. He had the pasty in his stomach, no vomiting. Right. So that's one major thing that's not happening. Um, No diarrhea either, which I I kind of left that out of here because it's it's unpleasant. (laughs) Sure. But but there wasn't any. It wasn't cited. And it is a side effect of many poisons. Right. The the one thing that keeps coming back to me as far as uh, the medical conditions was a tremendous amount of congestion and inflammation. Speaking of inflammation, one of the things that, you know, that we all know was that he had an enlarged spleen. And there's been all this speculation about this. And we're going to get to what the ARC found out about it, specifically Chris found out about it. But I want to mention something that I came across with regard to the enlarged spleen, and that was miliary tuberculosis. Oh. This is a form of TB that is the result of the myobacterium tuberculosis traveling to extrapulmonary organs, such as the liver, spleen, and kidneys. Patients with – this is from the Wikipedia page, by the way. I am reading excerpts from that page right now. Patients with miliary tuberculosis range from experiencing nonspecific signs, example, the presence of coughing and enlarged lymph nodes. Miliary tuberculosis can also present with an enlarged liver in 40% of cases, an enlarged spleen in 15% of cases, inflammation of the pancreas in less than 5% of cases, and multiple organ dysfunction with adrenal insufficiency, where the adrenal glands do not produce enough steroid hormones to regulate organ function. Secondly, hypercalcemia prevails in 16 to 51% of tuberculosis cases. Thus, hypercalcemia proves to be an important symptom of miliary tuberculosis. I then, of course, had to look up what hypercalcemia was because I had no no idea. But I guess it's most often caused by overactivity in the four tiny glands in the neck, the parathyroid glands, or from cancer. Extra calcium in the blood affects the body system. So it's essentially extra calcium in the blood. Right. Symptoms of hypercalcemia range from mild to severe. They may include increased thirst and urination, belly pain, nausea, bone pain, muscle weakness, confusion, and fatigue. Thirdly, corodial tubercules, pale lesions on the optic nerve, typically indicate miliary tuberculosis in children. These lesions occur in one eye or both. The number of lesions varies between patients. Corodial tubercules may serve as important symptoms of miliary tuberculosis since their presence can often confirm suspected diagnosis. I don't know what that looks like, but it seems like if he did have that, they would have seen it. Yeah. 
anyway, lastly, that between 10 to 30% of adults with miliary tuberculosis have tuberculosis meningitis, which is like the congestion you were talking about in right. the brain and yeah. that sort of thing. The risk factors for contracting miliary tuberculosis are being in direct contact with a person who has, who has it, living in unsanitary conditions, and having an unhealthy diet. People in the U.S. that are at a higher risk for contracting the disease include the homeless and persons living with HIV or AIDS. So he was a drifter, or he seemed to be maybe a little bit of a drifter, or yeah. a sort of, you know. So there, there are some things here. And it's, the, the final thing I want to read about is the, yeah. the, the mortality. If left untreated, miliary tuberculosis is almost always fatal. Although most cases of MT are treatable, the mortality rate among adults is 25 to 30%. This is in modern times, mind you. Mm-hmm. One of the main causes for these high mortality rates includes late detection of disease caused by nonspecific symptoms. The nonspecific symptoms include coughing, weight loss, or organ dysfunction. They, these symptoms may be implicated in numerous disorders, thus delaying diagnosis. Misdiagnosis with tuberculosis meningitis is also a common occurrence when patients are tested for TB, since the two forms of TB have high rates of co-occurrence. So I, this stood out to me as a possibility yeah. in terms of how it might have been acquired, the fatality of it, an inability to properly diagnose it, and in 15% of cases, an enlarged spleen. Right, right. And it can be fatal. Just something to think about in term, whenever we talk about pre-existing conditions. Yes. All right, so let's move on to the latest developments from the research core, which are impressive. There A lot of really fascinating things have happened. To say the least. To say the least. And to, to truly get to the bottom of this case, more investigation obviously has to be done by all parties involved. That includes Professor Abbott, all the bloggers we mentioned before, uh, Nick Pelling, Gordon Kramer, the, anyone that has an interest in the case, Pete Bowes. It it's also includes the ARC, and the ARC being what it is, which – we kind of joke about, but it is basically a room full of super well-educated wild animals with access to things <laughs> that wild animals should not have access to. Right. It's the, <laughs> it's cursory yeah. research on steroids. No, it's it's, it's it, real yeah. research. It's real research. <laughs> it's the 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 room of of hyper intelligent monkeys uh, knowing that they're actually creating Shakespeare. No offense, Ark. No. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> right. they they have made some startling discoveries uh, with the aid of you guys as well, the listeners. You guys have sent in a lot of. Really good little tidbits, which we're going to go into here in a little bit. But we're going to go through them now with some newly minted theories that the ARC came up with uh, before we start wrapping up this final part in our series. And the first thing that I want to mention is uh, the information I'm about to share was compiled by ARC member Chris Cogswell, who I had asked to sort of get as much current information. So many things have been happening in there. Forrest and I, as we indicated earlier in the show, haven't even been able to keep up because we've been busy trying to craft the show and – Get it, get it together, and also for us, work sixty hours a week. <laughs> but it's like when you, yeah. where we have this um, application that manages the research core and all the information that's coming in. So you're oftentimes you're sitting at your desk, and it's just fifty or sixty things are popping up. They're posting about this. They're taking pictures of that. We yeah. broke into a library. There's like things happening. Well, this is what happens. Is that yes, you'll be at work, and something and something will pop up on your phone, on on the laptop or computer, and then uh, it's so you you have a vague idea. That a lot of stuff is happening that you can't enjoin in, in, and then yes. later on, it could be days later, I catch up with it. Like, oh, well, that was exciting. Yeah. I wish it would have been available for that. But well, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. It, it gets crazy, and yeah. this particular case has gotten particularly crazy. I want to talk about the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which we've covered extensively. 
uh, Professor Abbott had been looking for matching copies for quite some time. He did have access to the one copy he called the Jason Wells copy, which he has. uh, I guess Mr. Wells gave it to him. When I asked the ARC to find more copies, I'm going to call it the Rook. We, the, yeah. the acronym for the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam uh-huh. is Rook. Okay. So we're going to, if we say Rook, you hear us say TSM, that's the Summerton Man. Rook is the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. I asked him to find more Rook copies to help aid Professor Abbott in his search for what might be an exact matching original copy. There's a lot of reasons to find this, not the least of which is to find out if there's a code, as we heard from Amanda Soward's interview earlier that where it was used as a one-time pad, if you're going to check it as a one-time pad, you need to make sure you have the exact matching copy. Right, as as a book cipher. Exactly, as okay. a possible book cipher for that code that was on the back of the one that was found that that was related to the torn piece of Tamam Shud paper. Right. So we know at this point that the TSM copy was a Whitcomb and Tombs limited edition copy of the Rubaiyat in the Courage and Friendship booklet series. Chris Cogswell searched through academic references for that very specific copy, as did a few of our listeners who emailed us. Thank you very much. He was able to locate about 10 others that are claimed to be from that specific publishing run. One of them was in a collection of Rubaiyats that numbers in the thousands, a private collection yeah. in Kansas City. <laughs> yeah, An amazing amount of effort. By Miranda. Yes, Miranda Ehrenberg and her friend Jess, who was a photographer. Jess and Miranda are both members of the ARC, and they both went to find this private collection on our behalf because they were in close proximity to Kansas City. Missouri, by the way. That's where Kansas City is. There's two, you know. Yeah, I got in trouble with her for putting that in the wrong state. (laughs) Yeah. It's not far from Jesse James territory, frankly. Yeah, exactly. So they went over to take a look at this private collection, and it was in a room that apparently at the time I think was unmanned. They more or less broke in. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> they went in. No, they went in without permission. I will tell you, they were nervous. There was a lot of discussion. There was yeah, chatting. Was there was a, a lot of no, texting. Th- there was no B and E. There was no lock. Well, picking. no, I'm not There's saying no lock there was right? any B and E. Yeah. No, I love that you're asking. You, yeah. have, you had to ask. Right. They didn't pick a lock, did they? No, no, they did not. But they were in the room by themselves for a little bit before no, I knew that. Yeah. the curator came by and was like, what's going on here? I think that's perfectly harmless. And they <laughs> like, they yeah. were trying to figure out what they needed to do, and they were about to leave. Yeah. And she just happened to glance up. I'm telling you, there's thousands, at least a thousand copies of, yeah. of the Rook in there, all different kinds, all different sizes. She looked up and just happened to see a copy that matched the Whitcomb and Tombs description. She knew it yeah. was. She would have had to go back. It just it, it almost jumped off the shelf at her. Yeah. She got it down, and she took some pictures of it. We're all texting about it inside the ARC, trying to figure out, oh, my God, is this a match where we need to tell Professor Abbott? And it, it, goes, it goes even further. She winds up going back and obtained high-resolution images, photos of it. And we know that it has distinctive markings that make us believe that it is pretty much nearly identical, if not identical, to the TSM copy. It was definitely published by Whitcomb and Tombs. Chris Cogswell actually did a forensic comparison for the typeface of the Tamam Shud on it that matches the piece of paper that we have, and the height-to-width ratio and letter spacing are all a dead match, forensically, through analysis between what we have in the back of that copy and what is on the piece of paper that Jerry Feltis has in his possession at this time. Behind the words Tamam Shud, it's blank, and it appears to have a green tinge to the paper. The book itself also has 
what are called yapped borders because the cover is a little bit bigger than the book. And so the cover slip overhangs it and you can see that it's kind of worn out. There are some things about this copy that are different from the Jason Wells copy, though. The the coloration is more of a white green, which actually matches better to the original Tom Should paper that Feltis has, which showed green coloration under microscopy. Did I say that right? Microscopy. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, But one of the interesting things that we learned from this is that the number of books available in the Courage and Friendship booklet series are different between the Kansas City and the Wells edition, with the Wells copy includes inside the front cover there, books 10 and 11 in the series, and the Kansas City copy only goes up to nine. Furthermore, the Wells copy contains a page of author information that is not present in the Kansas City copy, further suggesting that it must be older. So based on this analysis... Dr. Abbott, as well as the rest of the ARC, believe the Kansas City copy is definitely in the same line of books as TSM's was, giving us a whole slew of new leads, including the fact that it was first published around 1941, meaning that TSM and Joe must have met and established some sort of relationship uh, not prior to that time because that's when it was first published. The book was most widely available in Australia or New Zealand at the time, with London being the only other store from this bookmaker. And then we have new leads on the code. Since we now have confirmation of the bookmaker, we can use the other copies now to cross-reference and see if there are any differences and things that match the code. So if we have these multiple editions, we can take a look and see if the translations vary or the placement of the stanzas vary in a way that would affect your ability to decode the cipher. So based on all this, we now know that TSM must have been in an area to receive the book, or if Joe gave it to him, to receive the book at the earliest between 1941 and at the latest 1948, right before he died. It makes sense that she gave it to him earlier because his copy was pretty worn, by the way. But we can't really say for sure. And we also know he was most likely in Australia since the book was mostly available there. And furthermore, we have cities around which the book was sold to investigate from the insect cover. That's where we're at with that edition of The Rook. There's more to tell about The Rook here in a minute, but I'm, I'm sticking with just ARC developments right now. There's some, some developments have happened outside of the ARC with relation to the Rook. The laundry marks, which we talked about in our earlier episodes, we have an actual real-life ex-FBI agent now looking for the laundry mark list on the Nassau County Police Bureau. And Chris says he thinks he's going to be seeing him this weekend, so hopefully he'll get more information then. And this is some connection that he has through his mother, so that's awesome. We have entertained the idea, and some of our, you listeners have emailed us about this as well, that the laundry marks might have come from a ship or a hospital or a, some sort of military organization, and, and, and we're looking into that. We also have the leather strop. We were able to ascertain where we think the strop came from, and we've narrowed down where we think the Somerton Man might have lived, which was around Kent Street in Sydney. But this is it's still a little bit speculative, but we're, we're getting there. We're not positive of it, but it's, it's, there's information pointing to it. And to, to explain the strop, we have, we've really been looking into the suitcase contents. And Chris says that in, in speaking for the ARC himself anyway, that the following information has come up. that The trousers that were in the suitcase were manufactured by an Australian firm from 1942 to 44. They were sold all over Australia, but only in Australia. Servicemen would not have bought these clothes until after they left the service, so it's likely that TSM was a civilian at this point. The overcoat was made in the USA. The other trousers in the suitcase were the Stamina brand made by Wilson from Crusader Cloth, only available in New South Wales and Victoria. That's from Jerry Feltis's book. 
and some of this information has already been discovered by other people. We've just firm, we've further confirmed it, and we've we've been able to use it to help do a better triangulation of where the Summerton Man might have come from. The strop had the label on it that Kent Street, Sydney was stamped on. So that's how we're making the deduction that he might have been there. And a lot of people have made that deduction as well, but it's just more information. What's so interesting about the strop evidence is that this, there was a shop on Kent Street in Sydney in a district which housed primarily the following sorts of businesses, engineering, machining, metalworking firms, all of these things explaining some of the other contents in the suitcases, possibly even the electrician's screwdriver and how he might have accessed the zinc sheet metal. There were import and export businesses, including those that provided exotic fabrics, linens, and leathers, textiles, and clothing. It's not hard to imagine he potentially bought his items that are not normally available in Australia there or maybe even traveled for work. Based on all these items being available in Sydney at the time, and in this one area in particular, we believe it's likely he was in Sydney either working or living in the 1940s until his death. Joe was also living there at the same time. With regard to T. King, one of our newest members to the group, who actually came over to us from Reddit and was recommended to be allowed to join, goes by Qualis, found the following information. Commander Thomas J. King... USNR, has arrived in Melbourne to relieve Commander Evan Reinhardt as commanding officer of the U.S. Navy Section Base. For the past three years, Commander King has been liaison and port officer for the U.S. Navy at Belfast, Ireland. Qualis found that in the August 8, 1945 edition of the Melbourne newspaper The Age in a section entitled About People on page 2. So potentially, King and TSM went to the same laundry place where he stole the tie, which had the name Keen on it, or got it by accident. He could have bought it from a secondhand shop or something in the area. In either case, it's very intriguing new lead because this is at least a tantalizing coincidence, having not been able to find other T. Keens in Australia, really. And the one that we found was this guy who died in the late 40s. One of the things that actually Gordon Kramer presented on his blog, which we mentioned earlier, which is timeandshould.blogspot.com, was that you know, T- TSM's fingerprints showed blurred areas of the skin at the right thumb, forefinger, and middle fingers, indicating potential callosites. So Kramer supposed that he's very possibly used some form of tool similar to those that are used in engraving, carving, and the printing fields. Now, being a printer or engraver fits with his possessions, including a stenciling brush, drafting pencils, scissors, knife, and screwdriver. It also fits the area where his other belongings were potentially purchased. And, and another option that Qualis suggested, maybe, separate from Mr. Kramer's observation, was that he might have been a radio operator, which is something that Forrest had alluded to in one of the earlier parts of the series as well. So he, these, I guess these types of radio operators would have had the same sorts of calluses. The last theory, and this has again to do with polio, which is what Chris Cogswell personally thinks might have been a possibility. I I had mentioned the miliary TB. Chris thinks there's a possibility that the Somerton man had polio because Joe, where she worked, the hospital, was the foremost treatment for polio in Australia when she was doing her nursing schooling, you know, right up until she abruptly left when she got pregnant with Robin. We know that TSM was given the rook sometime between 1941 and 48. And therefore, he likely met Joe when she was a nursing student. All Australian polio cases were sent to the Fairfield Infectious Disease Hospital where Joe worked because in those years, they had iron lungs on hand to treat labored breathing of polio victims. Even those without paralytic polio need iron lung treatment sometimes. 
Based on what we know of his autopsy report, TSM had congestion in the brain. You know what? I don't think I realized that. That actually works with miliary tuberculosis as well, Mm. the brain congestion, Mm -hmm. because they were talking about the meningitis. Mm. So just an aside there. So he had congestion in the brain and other organs, as well as the enlarged spleen, which I already referenced, all symptoms that can be caused by infection besides brain congestion, which, by the way, means blood, not phlegm or fluid, meaning polio is certainly an option. Brain congestion, however, can also occur due to a lack of oxygen to the brain and subsequent minor stroke or small brain bleed. Chris goes on to say that his dad actually had one of these, and it was insane just how quickly it happened. He went from completely normal to on the floor in a matter of minutes. His occurred due to sleep apnea and a lifelong love of smoking, which the Summerton man also had based on the cigarettes and his lighter, which was a multi-use model. So Chris's theory is that TSM had polio as a young adult or child and required continued treatments from the iron lung as he aged. He likely did not have paralytic polio, but may have had slight paralysis of his lungs or lifelong difficulty breathing. Some polio sufferers have gone on to athletic careers, including the most winningest track and field Olympian, Ray Erie, not sure I'm saying that right, it's E-W-R-Y, known as the Human Frog. He won 10 gold medals in standing jump events. He used a wheelchair as a kid. Also, Walt Davis, who caught polio at nine and couldn't walk for three years, went on to win a gold medal in the Olympics for the high jump, then played in the NBA. So if TSM had polio, it would have likely gotten him out of wartime service and also explained why he was still around in Australia at the time. So that's Chris's polio theory. It's very interesting. The ARC is continuing to work on it because there actually was a registry and there's records that can be checked if he was a polio patient at the Ah, hospital. mm -hmm. So we're, we're continuing to dig into that. The other causes of death that Chris is putting forward is he actually works in a lab. He's a scientist. He's got access to real live Lab stuff. Sciencey stuff. <laughs> Sciencey. Science machines. Yes. Yeah. Science machines. So he, he he finally points out I would be remiss to not include blood cancers. All of his problems could be easily explained by a blood cancer, which would potentially have made him seek out his son or ex lover since he knew he didn't have long to live. However, how this would have killed him is up to debate. I would guess a stroke, but it still could have happened. Chris's final thoughts, and he says here that he thinks the ARC would back him up on this is that the Somerton man lived or worked in Sydney in the years just before his death. He also thinks he was probably working around Kent Street as an engraver, printer, mechanic, or engineer, something that required technical skill and the use of tools to give callosites in the fingers, but not enough physical labor to cause his hands to become hard and him to become overly muscular. While he may have come from America, I don't think it is necessarily the case that he had to travel back to the U.S. to buy the items only available there. Just because things were only sold in the U.S. generally does not mean that he couldn't have gotten them at importers or specific goods or even from American co-workers or friends. They also think he must have traveled between Melbourne, where Joe was studying at the hospital, and Sydney. Potentially, he was a traveling worker of some sort. Chris thinks he likely died of a small brain stroke, regardless of whether or not he had polio, probably from troubled breathing. All right, so that, that wraps up where the ARC's at right now. They're continuing to work on it. We have multiple forums dedicated to it. Um, of course, I'm going to be having to make their task help us out with whatever our next episode's going to be. But for now, they continue to be involved in it, and Professor Abbott is, is, a, is a guest member as well. I want to tell a very brief story of the New Zealand Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. That's right. <laughs> we found another copy. <laughs> right. This is pretty crazy. This is something that I think Professor Abbott is going to be quite surprised to hear. We have not told him about this. So, Professor Abbott, if you're listening, I hope that you will find this exciting news. 
About 10 days ago, I was checking on the Astonishing Legends Facebook page, and we had a message from one of you guys, a listener named Paco Tuniro. He lives in New Zealand, and he wrote the following letter to me at 2 a.m. my time via Facebook. Hey guys, great show. I just started listening to 2B and got inspired to do a quick search for the Rubaiyat on the local New Zealand equivalent of eBay. Does this look like bleached white pages to you guys? I'll try and win the auction, but some other bidder has an auto bid on it. And accompanying this was a photograph of a Whitcomb and Tombs Courage and Friendship edition of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam mixed in with a collection of like 10 other books. It was just sitting there in the corner, yeah. and then there was a close-up picture of the inside cover open. So now I'm just waking up. It's April 30th, actually. The message when I got it was already five and a half hours old. And when I read it I, and I saw that picture, I, I knew that that was the edition of the Rook that we needed. And I love, too, that the person who took the picture and was offering it for sale was wearing a white glove. <laughs> right. It was not in great condition, but it's definitely the right copy. It looks like it might have some mold in it. I'm not sure, but there's something going on there. Anyway, I had a heart attack because, you know, inside the left cover, it only goes up to six. So combining this information with the information from the Jason Wells copy, which Professor Abbott already has, and the Kansas City copy, it's going to give us even more specific knowledge around the Rubaiyat. So I wrote back Paco immediately. He was, of course, asleep. So now I'm beside myself because it's the middle of the night in Australia and New Zealand. I also had no idea what the New Zealand eBay was. I, I was like, what am I going to do? So I was like, how much time is left in the auction? I didn't know that either. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I'm pacing around trying to figure out what to do, waiting to hear back from Paco. I went to work utilizing my degree in cursory research by taking the complex action of typing eBay of New Zealand into Google. Or aren't you just the Sherlock Holmes yeah. of the internet? Lo and behold, a website comes up, trademe.nz, Trade me. Yeah, so I began frantically searching through Trade Me, and I came across an image of nine musty old rare poetry books being offered as a collection. In the upper right, the Whitcomb and Tombs Rook. And like I said, this one only goes up to six, which makes it potentially the oldest copy that we have found. So it's there. It's hiding in plain sight. I decided I wanted to set up an account. I was going to bid. I'm going to get this thing no matter what and get it shipped to the States, at least initially. That's what I thought. So... I got really far into the process only to find out that if you didn't live in New Zealand or Australia, you weren't allowed to bid. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know what kind of fascist thing that is, but I wasn't <laughs> – I couldn't do it. So yeah. I, was, I was about ready to throw my computer out the window at this point. Paco is still sleeping. So my next thing is to tweet and put on Facebook, if you're a listener in Australia, I need to talk to you now. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I kind of thought, well, I'm not going to hear anything for hours. And then one of our favorite listeners who, if anyone visits our Facebook page, has seen her post on there. She's a wonderful supporter of the show. Corinne Wilma sends me a message essentially saying, what's up? <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, thank God. She's up. And then, so now we're talking on the Facebook message window. And I'm telling her – I'm filling her in. And I sent her a link to the auction. And I asked her to set up an account – and promised to PayPal her the money it took to get this collection of books that was currently bidding at around $4. It Just now, after a few hours anyway, I should say, Paco gets back to me and he's like, I'm watching the auction too. And so now we're all watching. So wonder, so what we're wondering is, is someone going to swoop in at the end? So I authorized Corinne to go ahead and spend up to $100 US to get this collection of poetry, which probably nobody really cares about. This is musty garage sale territory. <laughs> you know, I was very excited, though, to see the, the whole collection of books. Yes, there's, there's some, some very fun cool. books there. There's, there's a couple a, there's, of other Whitcombs. Yes, exactly. And there's yeah. some other Whitcomb and Tomb stuff. So we're sitting down here waiting for the auction to end. It was, you know, it was 12 hours when we first discovered it. It was supposed to end at 8 p.m. by my time in L.A. 
I'm down on the computer. I can't actually bid or participate in the bid. I can just watch. Corinne is trying to place the bids just right. We're trying to find out if someone's going to snipe it at the end and come out and outbid us because someone did bid $101 right after we put 100 in there. Anyway, she makes the final high bid at 102 No one counters that bid. We win. We now own Astonishing Legends, its own copy of the appropriate Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. So we think. Well, there's there's an addendum here. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, but but between the Kansas City Rook and the this one, and then the one we found out about through our listeners, we were able to find two copies in one week. So this message is for you, Professor Abbott. The copy that we just bought is being shipped to Corinne in Queensland. It should arrive sometime in the coming week, hopefully. The ARC has had a conference about it, and we decided that once she has it, we're going to have it shipped directly to you. So we can talk more about what happens after that offline. It's not in the great condition the Kansas City copy is, nor the Wells copy, but it looks okay based on the pictures, which are posted with this episode. (laughs) Yeah. So, But Corinne still hasn't gotten it yet, and this is the thing. The seller said it should be to you in three to five days. Corinne and I are checking in daily, and – the she went down to the post office. I thought it might come before we recorded. Yeah. It, she doesn't have it in her possession. We don't have any reason to believe it won't get there, but the post office told her that stuff from New Zealand to her could take uh, two to three weeks. Wow. So we're we're 10 days in. It's coming by outrigger. Yeah. She okay. said she could get stuff from the States faster. So <laughs> Interesting. I, I wanted it to be tracked, but you know, it's, it's coming. I believe it's real. I believe it's coming. And the reason I have to say I believe it's real is because in a final twist, another listener, Jonathan Self, contacted me within hours of all this other stuff transpiring. He had found one for sale at a rare book dealer in Texas online. He sent me the link. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to get another one. (laughs) I immediately went online and I bought it. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have my own and I get to actually see it. It's going to come to (laughs) me. It was coming from Texas. And then two days later, I get an email. This has been refunded. And I was like, what? No yeah. explanation. Just your order's been refunded. I had to go through all, jump through all these hoops to get anyone to tell me anything. And they were just like, it doesn't exist. Right. Or we shouldn't have had it in our inventory. And it's like, well, it was there at some point. Where did it go? Can you not tell me? I was like, this is tied to a cold case. <laughs> yeah. There's murder. Right. There's murder. Nuclear secret. Yeah. Yeah. So they, yeah. Uh, that one didn't exist and I got refunded. So, well, you don't know what happened to it. Obviously, yeah. there was, there was it was probably, there at some point. Yeah. But no, I, as I explained this to you, you know, you can sell books on Amazon as a, as a bookseller, you know, yeah. in your, from your own private collection, which is great. If you want to get rid of a few books, you just list them. Yeah. Well, this could happen. You're, you're up there for years and years, seriously. And then nothing can happen for like three years, suddenly out of the blue. Somebody wants that copy yeah. of, a, of a specific book that you got in college. Yeah. And it got you, burnt in the shed. Well, you don't yeah, exactly. No, anything. <laughs> oh, I burned that in the shed two years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or you threw it out. It got recycled. You don't know. And then at some point, it's like, oh, you know what? Yeah, I did have that, but that was three years ago, and I can't find it now. Newsflash: This is the closest I've ever recorded something to a show actually going out, which is going to happen in the next few hours. I just wanted to let everyone know that yesterday, late in the day. After Forrest and I had recorded most of this episode, the Astonishing Legends copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam that we won in the auction in New Zealand has reached its destination in Queensland and is now in the hands of the lovely and talented Corinne Wilma, whom without we would not have this copy. 
Corinne, thank you so much, and thank you for the photos that you've sent. Professor Abbott, we are ready to send it to you. All you have to do is contact me as soon as you hear this and give us a good shipping address, and we will figure out how to get it shipped to you. We also have another book of poetry from Whitcomb and Tombs, which is giving us additional information. There are photos included with tonight's episode of the New Zealand copy, as well as the other Whitcomb and Tombs book. So feel free to go take a look at those. And now we go back to our regularly scheduled program. All right, so I want to get down to my final conclusions here. Yes. And your final conclusions. Are okay. you ready for that? Oh, I want to do, sure. I'll do mine first. All right. Because maybe you'll agree with me. Who knows? Yeah. Here's what I think. Okay. Real quick, here's <laughs> what right. I think. All right. I think Joe liked Alfred Boxall, and after spending some time with him in 1945 and 46, their relationship dead-ended. I think she gave him a rook as a farewell. He was already married. Perhaps they fooled around and she thought they would be together, but he wanted to stay with his wife. After Boxall's out of the picture, Joe meets the Somerton man. They develop a relationship. She probably met him in much the same way she met Boxall. Who knows? Maybe they were drinking at a pub. At some point in late October or early November of 1946, Joe becomes pregnant. What happens to TSM now? We don't know. Who was he? We don't know. But for whatever reason, he's out of the picture. For the sake of the story I'm telling here, I'm going to suggest that he fled after he found out she was pregnant. And you're going to see why in a minute. Joe is now unable to complete her nurse training, even though she's just a few weeks away probably from her final exam. She flees Sydney to move home to where she grew up in Mentone, just south of Melbourne. After moving there, she becomes increasingly depressed. Her situation is hopeless. She can't become a nurse because she didn't finish her training. She can't finish her training because she's pregnant. The father of her child is out of the picture. She is a single, unwed mother with no job or stability. She becomes suicidal. She goes to a bridge where she plans to jump to her death when fate intervened and her childhood friend, George Prosper Thompson, spotted her. He was probably driving by in his taxi. He literally talked her off of the ledge. He saved her life. Now, if you guys don't remember from the earlier parts, Professor Abbott mentioned that there was a rumor that he had saved her from committing suicide. So that's where I'm getting that bit of information. They become close. They had already known each other a long time. And in her distraught state, he made it clear that he would take care of her, help her raise this unborn child, and raise it as his own, anything to keep her from killing herself. While not necessarily in love with George, he was her savior. She agreed, and shortly after that, they both moved to Adelaide. Details are fuzzy on when and where they actually wound up living together, but they did move to Adelaide sometime in the first half of 1947. George had now graduated from driving a taxi and had been buying and selling cars almost as a hobby, but he was making some money, and he wanted to make it a real business. On July 11, 1947, a little boy is born, the son of the Somerton man. They name him Robin, and he takes George's surname on the birth certificate. As Joe told one of her friends, who in turn told Professor Abbott when he interviewed her, after George died, George did the right thing. He raised Robin as one of his own. Cut to late 1949. Robin is over two years old now. He is very much a part of their lives. For whatever reason, the Somerton man is coming to find Joe. Maybe he wants to see his son. Maybe he doesn't know about his son and simply wants to reconnect with Joe, realizing that he in fact loved her, and she possibly loved him as well. He doesn't really know where she lives. He has to figure it out. He doesn't know Adelaide well either. He buys the wrong train ticket and never uses it. But eventually he makes his way to Joe's house, if you believe a vague eyewitness account from a neighbor of someone showing up only to find no one home. She's not there. Then one of a few things happen, and again, choose your own adventure. He waits to connect with Joe and never quite does. 
He dresses to meet her, but stops at the beach to enjoy the sunset, when due to a pre-existing condition of one kind or another, including possibly polio or miliary tuberculosis, he simply dies on the beach. Or, he somehow does connect with Joe. She doesn't want him back in her life. She panics. They meet briefly at her house. She explains that she is with George now. TSM makes a proclamation of wanting to be in her life. Somehow she poisons him with something slow-acting and undetectable. Maybe something she learned about in her training. She tells him to leave. Maybe he's aware that he's been poisoned. He goes to the beach to die, rejected and forlorn. Or, Joe finds out that the Somerton man is in town. She tells George she's not sure what to do. George finds a way to get him out of the picture, whether personally or some other way, and the Somerton man is left on the beach to die, which he does. Which he does. Out of respect for Joe and no clear connections, the police never investigated the possibility that Joe and or George may have been involved in the Somerton man's death. But for me, I see both motive and opportunity for them, especially with a child in the picture. So there's my speculation, and that's all it is. It's a combination of facts and theories called into an idea that may be a stretch. It doesn't really account for the Rook stuff or spy stuff or anything else. Frankly, it seems much more mundane to me, and if you go with option one of what I said regarding his death, the idea that he simply passed away from a pre-existing condition, whether he was helped along or not, then it really is just natural causes, and he's a man that few people knew, so he was never identified. Well, I'll buy some of that. <laughs> <laughs> that's it for me. I'm done. That's where well, I'm that out. That's exhaustive. Yeah. Yeah. But it's all – this is what gelled for me after yeah. going through this series. Itinerant dancer. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah. It, because there are things that we know that seem more believable than others or more recorded, I guess. Uh, I'm ready for down. you to do that Rumsfeld quote. What's that? There's things that we, we know. know. There's that, things that, we don't know that we know that are unknown because that's really true. But we don't know. <laughs> well, no, that, that – yes, regardless of the silliness of the whole thing, it does make sense. We don't know what we don't know. In this case – the description of her upon viewing the bust, and Professor Abbott has backed this up. It's also, I think, the testimony of the people in the room because there was multiple uh, authority figures in the room when she looked at it, and she looked at the floor, would not look up, seemed shocked, and almost passed out. Almost passed out. To me, doesn't seem like a cold, calculated killer. Right. That's a good point. Does not seem to me to be somebody who did not know this person as well, of course. Yeah. She knew this guy. And, and, and obviously cared about him. Yes, I believe so. That's a good so. point. That's a good point. Because I or she's a, the best actress ever, but then why would you even put that, that feel like, oh, I don't know this guy. Yeah. Oh, you know, and, and then kind of <laughs> act all that way. You would just be kind of like, oh, that's too bad. I don't know this guy. Yeah. I'll see you later. So obviously there is a connection that is personal, you don't know to what degree. What I do know is that the perfect person to have solved this would be Dr. Blake from the Dr. Blake Mysteries. What? What is, <laughs> is the this, Dr. Blake Mysteries? You, you haven't heard of that? Where are you going with this? Oh, dear. The Dr. Blake Mysteries is an Australian television show. that I think it started in uh, 2013. It stars uh, Craig McLaughlin. I think he's a, a popular Australian actor. And it's as perfect because... He leaves during the war, I think, to become a doctor. He goes off to Scotland, I think, to learn his trade. I don't know the, all the back history on it. I, I've, I've seen a few episodes. It's, it's, it's a good show. It's, it's pretty intriguing. 
But the essential part of it is that he's come back, I think in the late 50s, to take over his father's practice because he, he had fought, his father had passed away. So now here he's got this practice in a small town with a lot of gossip, a lot of mysteries going on. He's got a level-headed and kind of stubborn nurse receptionist type who helps him out, tries to keep him on the straight and narrow. But he solves a lot of mysteries in town with the use of his medical knowledge, but also he's the keeper of secrets in the town. He finds out things and he uses all that to kind of put things together. So in fact, I think actually they did an episode which kind of hints at this because, of course, it's an Australian mystery show. It's a famous Australian mystery but it it wasn't like they totally covered it as the Subberton Man. So there you go. But it's it's too bad he wasn't around. He would have just wrapped this up in <laughs> in forty eight minutes. That's your conclusion. That's your yes. Wrap that's up? it. Let's have, let's have him do that. <laughs> let's have them, the producers of the show just nice. go back to that one mystery and um, and solve it for us. So one of the more likely things and kind of the more simple, but. More romantic? No, look, I'm I'm more of the the mind of like I hope it's a spy. I hope it's an international nuclear spy secret kind of story. To me, that's the most exciting. But I think maybe the more likely scenario, and possibly the more romantic, is that it's look. It's the setup of every romantic. I've got a disease kind of thing. I've come back to the town. I know that I have a kid somewhere that I didn't connect, but now that I'm dying. I just want to. I just want to see this kid one last time. Tell you I'm sorry. Make amends. I'll be out of your life. Thank you and goodbye. Or maybe I just need some prescriptions because you're a nurse. But I think that is a likely thing. Look, what we know though is that her phone number was in the back of the Rubaiyat. Yeah, in the car. The letters of the code that were written in there in pencil. Don't seem to me like a book cipher because unless you're spelled— Well, it's the same—by the way, that's the same stuff that Amanda said. Yeah. Yeah, so— Okay, right. Exactly. So—and it's not a great book for being a book cipher. Right. Because I think you want a a wide variety of contemporary words and language to choose from, and that's not the greatest book to do it. So here's my thinking. He's got a copy of a book that she gave him, most likely. Or he could have got it on his own. Who knows? But it's it's romantic-type poetry— philosophy on life, this and that. He's got her phone number penciled in the back. He's got a code stenciled out with a line crossed out. To me, if he's not a spy, if it's not a grocery list, it's what he wants to say to her when he finally meets her, because this is going to be a big moment. He knows he's she's going to slam the door in his face. Look, I've just got this one thing to say. I'll be on my way. You know, and, and he's, I think the thinking, and I think Professor Abbott's on this same line, is that it may be an alliteration or, or the first letters of, of words, words yeah. of and that he, in his mind that he's too embarrassed to write out. He's not going to write it out in the in the back, but he's got this speech kind of prepared in his mind. I would do this. I don't want to be fat, caught dead. Well, he was caught dead with it. I don't want to be caught dead with a with a, a crummy love poem or something very personal that I want to express to somebody. But I'm I am rehearsing it in my head because I know I have to get this right. I, that's my thinking on what the what the letters are. And then maybe and he, he knows, cry, and he he knows he's going to die. He, he, yeah, he tears could, out the tamam should. Yes. Puts it in his pocket. Yeah. Because this and is he, an, an end game for him. Exactly. And this is a poem or something that he's memorized that he wants to say to her before he checks out. I think so. And I think what you just said about him knowing that this is the end, my friend, he's got this one thing to say, but it's not silly because this happens all the time. You hear this about older couples. One dies. They've been married for 70 years. The other one dies three days later. They can't live without each other. Or, and this has happened in our family, a sick and dying family member holds out until everybody's there. 
And I, I've seen this happen. Once you get there, within a few hours, they pass. I'm just – I'm going to hold on to that last little thread and then everybody's here. I can say goodbye and then we're done. So the neighbor said that he knocked on the door. She wasn't there. That's one report, right? But if he had it her, was him. We don't know that that was him, but someone knocked on the door and, right. and she, no one was home. Okay. So either he didn't see her or he did. If he didn't I, – I, he, he has her phone number. He can call. Maybe she's not home. So, that must be how he knew where she lived. Yeah, exactly. So I think it doesn't matter if he, if he talked to her or he didn't. If he talked to her, she he was rebuffed or he got to say what he what he wanted. Either case, he's now done. He's made his trip. He goes to the beach. I'm going to have a smoke, watch the sunset. The sun sets and fade to black. <laughs> That's going to wrap it up for the Summerton Man series, for now anyway. Please remember to support our sponsors. Visit MacWeldon.com and get 20% off of high-quality underwear, socks, and shirts, if I haven't bought it all, with the promo code LEGENDS. Also, if you love to learn like we do, check out thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends and get access to hundreds of their courses for free. Special thanks to Amanda Sowards for her time. Follow the links in the show notes to get her books. Astonishing Legends is part of the Dark Myths Collective of Podcasts. We'll be back in about two weeks with a new episode. Our theme music was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps and our lead researcher, Tess Feifel. Most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. 
Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 